This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Happy Memorial Day weekend, or as I like to call it, Stupid War Weekend, when we remember the people who died and mostly avoidable, but always idiotic wars. This is hell. The most important elections in Europe's history are taking place right now. Okay, maybe they're not the most important elections. Maybe. When it comes down to how undemocratic the European Union is, the European parliamentary elections might be completely inconsequential. Democracy is in crisis. At least, I think it is. That is, I'm really not sure what democracy is or what it looks like, or for that matter, if it ever really existed. But it sounds awesome. You know, rule by the people. Whatever it is, something ain't right about democracy right now. We gotta do something about it. Immigration reforms never work. If they did, we wouldn't be talking about reforming immigration after we've had so many reforms over the last 30 years. They don't work because they are written to address the needs of capital, of business, and that always makes immigration reforms restrictive and inhumane. Psychedelics are back as the public becomes more receptive to tripping as therapy, with so many suffering from our epidemic of unhappiness, depression, and the PTSD we seem to all be getting from living our current lives. Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And during my monologue, I admit, I do not like Donald Trump. In fact, I'm done, done, completely done with Donald Trump. And you should be too. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell this week's live. Four-hour This Is Hell is being broadcast from the station studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston. Streaming live right now at thisisl.com podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisisl.com. You can hear us rebroadcast in abbreviated form on the Southside's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio and on Instagram at thisishell during this week's hell. The importance of this weekend's European parliamentary elections on the future of Europe, nay, its very existence cannot be overstated. Or can it? Apparently it can, as our first guest argues, it has. We'll start this week's show by speaking with journalist, writer, documentary filmmaker, activist, and Anglo-Italian translator Thomas Fazi. Thomas wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, The European Union is an anti-democratic disgrace. Thomas sees the European parliamentary elections as and the parliament itself as nothing more than a rubber stamp for neoliberal rule. Which makes sense when you look back at what happened to Greece when it elected a government because the party opposed a bailout, and once elected, immediately accepted a bailout. Turns out the entire European Union structure is undemocratic, and its founding documents never actually stated that it was going to be a democracy. Thomas's most recent book is 2017's Reclaiming the State, a Progressive Vision of Sovereignty for a Post-Neoliberal World, which he co-wrote with William Mitchell. Thomas is co-director of 2010's Standing Army, an award-winning feature-length documentary on U.S. military bases featuring Gore Vidal and past This Is Hell guest Noam Chomsky. Find out more about Thomas at thomasfazi.net. That's F-A-Z-I. 
After discussing this week's elections in the undemocratic European Parliament, we'll reflect on what democracy actually is and what it can be when we have the return of documentary filmmaker, writer, musician, political organizer, and activist Astra Taylor, author of the new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. We are told democracy is in crisis, but the problem is we've never really experienced democracy, so how can it be in crisis? And if it isn't democracy that's in crisis, what is? What does whatever the current political crisis is say about the state of democracy today? That's the fascinating thing about democracy, and it insists that you consider exactly what it means to have rule by the people. We'll do some deep thinking on what democracy is and what it can be when we talk to Astra, who was on the show this past February to discuss her new documentary film, What is Democracy? Find out more about Astra's new movie at whatisdemocracy.info. Astra is the author of the American Book Award winning The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age, which we discussed with Astra when she was, last, when she was on our show back in 2014. Astra is a former touring member of the band Neutral Milk Hotel, and she first appeared on This Is Hell way back in 2006. Following our talk on the undemocratic EU and then a thorough examination of what democracy is and what it could be in the third hour of this week's show, U.S. borders being closed is a very recent phenomenon with laws ensuring the free and easy flows of migrant agricultural labor being put on the books only a little over 75 years ago. Since then, there's been a steady increase of restrictions placed on who can and who can't enter the United States for work. Immigration reforms have attempted to make that process more humane, but they always seem to fall short. The problem, as our guest will contend, is that all reforms are trying to fulfill the demands of capital while trying to have a compassionate policy. And that ain't going to happen because what capital wants is a restrictive policy toward immigrants and an abusive one, too, to keep their immigrant labor in fear. Yeah, capital's that disgusting. We'll learn the real problems with restrictive immigration policy and hear an argument for a growing labor movement when we speak with human rights scholar Susie Lee, who wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders. Find her writing at catalyst-journal.org. Susie is director of the human rights program in the Department of Human Development at Binghamton University. Following discussions on unfulfilled democracy and fear, our happy fun time extravaganza begins the fourth and final hour of this week's Hell with a discussion on... Psychedelics, as in tripping, as in how everyone is incredibly depressed nowadays and nothing seems to be working to make us any happier. We're killing ourselves intentionally at historic rates. Everything is supposedly always getting better, so why do we keep feeling worse and worse and worse? Well, there may finally be hope for our unhappy planet, and that hope might be in the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs, as in LSD and mushrooms. We'll find out how accessible tripping may legally be in the very near future, and what ugliness that may bring to the beautiful thing that is tripping when we talk to freelance writer Garrison Lovely, who wrote the current affairs article, Make America Trip Again, Are Psychedelics a Solution to Our Political Turmoil, a Dangerous Unknown, or Something Else Entirely? While in college, Garrison co-founded Cornell's Prison Reform and Education Project, which works toward expanding prisoner rights. You can find out more about the project at cornellprep.org. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff honors the late, great theater Ublock member, Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts, who is gone 
far too soon. Like I said, I gotta admit it, I hate Donald Trump, but it's not like I'm obsessing over it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, this U.S. citizenship application that I'm filling out is more interested in communism than any of the DSA meetings I ever went to. <laughs> you know what? I think I may have given you both the copies of this week's Hangover. Oh, no. I got my own copy here. All right. Brave enough to be live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly Hangover. Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is... Cover yourself in menthol and mint. (laughs) In an article from April at bustle.com, the author writes, As someone who gets migraines, I can vouch for this one. Danielle Gurchio, a now-retired bartender who used to work at PKNY, a tiki bar in New York City, told Insider to basically use anything mint or menthol to treat your hangover. They then court Gurchio, saying, Upon waking and throughout the day, massage a drop or two of peppermint oil into your entire scalp and ears. <laughs> Smear Vicks Vapor Rub under your nose to avoid feeling nauseous from unpleasant smells you may encounter throughout your day. Also, drink double strength mint tea and put the tea bags onto your eyelids. For- this is like the most annoying coworker ever, just wandering around massaging <laughs> mint onto their face. That makes this week's hangover cure covering yourself in menthol and mint. So. Vicks Vapor Rub under your nose while having tea bags over your eyes. Yeah, that makes sense. I would love to be working with that person in the carol next to me. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I'm serious. Prove us wrong. Send me an email at chuck at com and prove that this is not God's favorite radio show. Look, I get it. Donald Trump is awful. He's a horrible human being. The fact that he he is president of the United States should cause every American to hang their head in shame. The entire United States of America should allow one whole day, 24 hours, where the rest of the world can collectively lob tomatoes or feces or whatever you want to fling at us for being such dopes as to have a system that would actually elect Donald Trump president, despite Trump not actually getting the most votes. Yeah, that's how embarrassing our democracy is. That is, if you can call it a democracy, because an electoral college ain't needed if you're in a country that's actually ruled by the people. And yes, Donald Trump should be impeached. And so should have President Bill Clinton as he lied to a federal grand jury. Sure, Clinton lied about something that was not in any way connected to the original reason for the investigation, but still, Bill lied. As an attorney, Clinton should have known They wouldn't be asking about his affair if they didn't already know everything about it, so it was a stunning lack of good judgment by a president who was an attorney and a Rhodes Scholar. And maybe that lack of judgment should have gotten Clinton booted from the presidency, but it didn't because that's not how impeachment works. Didn't get Andrew Johnson booted from the presidency, and that piece of crap made certain white supremacy did not disappear following the Civil War, as was intended and legislated by law. Clinton's amazingly poor judgment to lie to a grand jury may have reflected his poor judgment in general in passing NAFTA, the Crime Omnibus Act, welfare reform, the continuous bombing of Iraq, and sanctions that killed at least half a million Iraqis, mostly women and children, the bombings of the pharmaceutical company in Sudan and the Chinese TV station in in Sarajevo, Glass-Steagall, who knows? Maybe lying about Monica Lewinsky is a sign that Clinton is not only not as smart as we're told he is, but he's also 
a horrible person. And Trump's obstructive ways reveal another president with incredibly poor decision-making abilities. So yes, Trump should be impeached too. But like Clinton and Johnson, even if Trump is impeached, he ain't going nowhere. And I'm becoming increasingly afraid. Even if impeached, as Trump definitely should be, he'll win re-election. And this time, he won't need no electoral college. The problem is, we all know everything Trump does is evil, is the work of the spawn of Satan. We all are 100% certain that he is the Antichrist come to usher us toward an apocalypse. Or something like that. I never got to the devil part of the Bible. I didn't get to the God part that much, but, see... It's because I was raised Catholic, so the church just told me what was in the Bible, and that bored the hell out of me, so I never really read any of it. Wait, I remember something at the beginning, something about begat, begatting something. Nah, that's about it. But that's Trump, evil incarnate, and we have no doubt. Therefore, everything he is doing is wrong and must be stopped. And it's not only wrong, it's wrong to the most extreme level of wrongness, to the point where the exact opposite of what Trump says and does must be the correct thing to do. And we must express how appalled we are in reaction to Trump's disgusting idiocy. We all must raise attention of exactly how upset we are about whatever it was this time from Trump. And we have to be more untrumpian than the next person who is upset over Trump's stupidity in order to prove our disapproval. Trump wants to end the war with North Korea that has been technically and actually going on for the past 60-plus years. We must stop this attempt at peace. But to be authentically anti-Trump, now we must be pro-war with North Korea. Trump is budding up to Putin, which must mean cooler relations with Russia are a bad thing, as Trump is doing it. And again, we now have to double down on hating Russia because becoming more and more provocative because Trump is apparently being more friendly. Although, if you look at Trump's policies toward Russia, they're actually on par with anti-Russia policies over the last several decades. The obsession with Trump saying, what this time? Can you believe it? We're going to war with who? With whom? Venezuela? Now it's Iran? Wait, what did Trump say today? And isn't it time for some shocked response and eye-rolling to rev up the base? When reading Trump's online statements, where you are certain of his motivations, you start falling down that rabbit hole of perceived motivations as reality. The first steps towards conspiracy theory is the late, great Charles Manson prosecutor and helter-skelter author Vince Bugliosi told us once. And the problem with conspiracy theories is they empower whoever is supposedly the mastermind behind that conspiracy theory, elevating their power and status to some Dr. Evil-like level. In fact, this week it was reported that Vladimir Putin's entourage loved the image of Dr. Evil that the United States has put on Putin, that Putin is empowered by the exaggerations of his masterminding, a plot that overthrew American democracy and everything else MSNBC claims Putin is doing. Yes, I know Putin's up to no good, but he's not as great as many want to make him out to be. Nobody is. So I'm done with Trump. Not that I've been paying much attention anyway, to be honest. I can't keep, keep up and I really, I just don't want to. It seems that whatever outrageous thing he does or says is replaced with another outrage only a few days or hours later. And then all other earlier outrages are erased from memory. Unless Trump does a callback to one of his classics. The litany of sensational statements is a desperate scream for attention, not policy. It's an attempt at ratings, and to capitalists like Trump, ratings are votes because citizens are consumers. Trump is 
selling a shtick, a brand, to garner attention, to get views and shares. He's not governing. He's trying to grab our eyeballs, which gives him purpose because without that attention, without the public checking his tweets and reacting to every outrageous statement, he's nothing. He's that person whose social media posts never get any comments. The more you talk about Trump, the more you comment on Trump, the more you reproduce Trump, the more power, the more media attention Trump gets. Just like last time, the more votes Trump receives. So Democrats, please stop obsessing on Trump's trivial, pointless statements that lose all value within hours that are contradicted shortly after. The pointless criticism of, which is then in turn branded as fake news, blowing a dog whistle to all his fascist friends that motivates them to go vote. I know what you're thinking, anybody but Trump, but look how good that worked in 2004 with nominating John Kerry, who disagreed with 75% of rank-and-file Democrats who wanted to end the war in Iraq immediately. Kerry didn't. That's the kind of anybody but candidate. That's the kind of electable loser you'll get with your entire focus on Trump. So stop with your obsession with Trump. Quit paying attention. Maybe if you stop looking at and paying attention to Trump, he'll just go away. And maybe, just maybe, candidates can get around to telling us how great their plan is instead of how horrible Trump is. But I know they can't help themselves. They love hating Trump. Hating Trump gets them ratings, too. And apparently, they don't mind sharing the spotlight with Trump. And that likely means on election night, November 2019, we'll be reminded again, this is hell. If you are an artist or know an artist that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our listener appreciation and anniversary party on July 27th, email me your or their art and we will definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary and listener appreciation party this year. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well, so if you are an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our listener appreciation and anniversary party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. This week's question from Hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? What are you throwing on people you disagree with? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets one of the books featured on this week's show. Astra Taylor's Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the most important elections in Europe's history are taking place right now, or they may be completely inconsequential. Democracy is in crisis in that we don't have democracy and never have, and maybe we never will. Immigration reforms never work because they center on the concerns of class, which leads to their inhumanity. Psychedelics are back as therapy in our increasingly desperate and depressing times. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin honors Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. We'll also have Rotten History listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing during the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow Hacker Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke, even though that segment has gotten bumped the last few weeks. We want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party again at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. Of course, the question from hell. We have some listeners to thank for sharing This Is Hell, others for supporting This Is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. European parliamentary elections are taking place right now, and some are calling them the most important elections in Europe. For a very, very long time, one of those people not calling these elections important is our first guest, journalist, writer, documentary filmmaker, Activist and Anglo-Italian translator Thomas Fazi wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, The European Union is an Anti-Democratic Disgrace. Welcome to This Is Hell, Thomas. Hi, thank you. Good morning to everyone. You can follow Thomas on Twitter, at Battle for Europe, and you can find out more about Thomas at thomasfazi.net. That's F-A-Z-I. Uh, so... We are, you start your writing by saying if there's an opinion that everyone across the entire political spectrum seems to share about the upcoming European elections, it's that these will be the most important elections in the history of the European Union. All sides pitted in battle from the Eurosceptic populace to pro-EU elites to everyone in between, including the UK Labour Party, claim that the makeup of the next parliament will be decisive for Europe's future. Then you quote a past guest on our show and the former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, mm-hmm. who is running for a seat in European Parliament. He recently said, the contest for seats in the next European parliamentary elections will fundamentally shape the future of Europe for years to come. In fact, we got an email last week from a listener in Brussels named Miska, who ended by writing, we've got EU elections in a week. Go Varoufakis and the European Spring. Varoufakis is running as a member of the group DM25, who describe themselves as cross-movement, trying to unite green, radical left, and liberal in order to repair the EU before, as they say, it disintegrates. Will the election that started Thursday, continues today, and end tomorrow, determine the fate of the EU, that is, whether it will be repaired or disintegrate? Well, um, no, most likely not, because uh, the EU is not a democracy. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's curious. I mean, if an alien were to land on, on Earth today and read the you know, main titles in all the European, well, the global papers, you know, I mean, he'd probably um, assume that the EU is, in fact, a democracy, because if these elections are so important, then it clearly must mean that the parliament that people are, are voting in uh, this week uh, will have all the powers that are usually associated with a normal parliament, the national parliament. But that's not at all the case. Uh, the, the European Parliament doesn't even have the basic attribute of uh, sort of standard democracies, which is the power to uh, initiate laws, the sort of legislative power. Uh, that's uh, a reserve of the European Commission, which is kind of the, the de facto European government, which um, isn't really elected by the European Parliament. Um, and in fact, there's, uh, you know, that's what a lot of people imply when they say that these elections are so important, because they say, well, the European Parliament then is going to, you know, uh, select a commission. And of course, you know, whoever gets into the European Parliament will be able to choose the commission. But that's not really how it works. Uh, according to European treaties, uh, it's the European Council, which comprises the heads of state and government of the member states, 
that um, proposes the head of the commission and then uh, and, and only has to do so taking into account the results of the European elections, which is very different from saying that they have to abide by the results of the elections. And then the European Parliament uh, really only has a choice to uh, accept or not accept the proposal of the European Council. But uh, European leaders have already said that, you know, uh, especially because they fear, you know, uh, a rise in numbers uh, of so-called um, Eurosceptic populists, uh, although I would agree that they're so Eurosceptic, but that's a different argument, uh, that they've already, they've already said that at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to choose the commission regardless of the uh, result of the um, of the elections. And... Um, so that's really where we're at. I mean, the, the, it's ultimately the, the, the heads of state uh, and the European Council that calls the shots in the in the European Union, uh, and that's really a you know, profoundly anti-democratic system. It's often uh, argued that well, yeah, these heads of state uh, are, nas- are democratically elected in the various countries, so if they're the ones deciding the Commission, that's still kind of democratic, isn't it? But it but it really isn't because. Uh, well, first of all, you're uh, you're transforming what is effectively a uh, you know executive bodies. I mean, these gov- governments are executive bodies. At the European level, you're transforming them into legislative bodies. Uh, so they're the ones uh, uh, you know selecting the uh, you know government, quote unquote, and uh, uh, and which also uh, can approve laws along with the European Parliament. Um, and the fact is that they can do this uh, essentially behind closed, closed doors. So uh, not only do national electorates, national citizens, really have no way of controlling or overseeing what their governments are doing at the European level, but even national parliaments uh, really can do much to oversee what uh, their governments are doing at the European level. And I think this really exemplifies uh, really why you know why the European Union was created in the first place. It was really a way of uh, of, of taking power away from. Uh, national electorates of uh, and, and bringing it up to a higher level, where national elites, national uh, oligarchies would be able to uh, essentially, uh, you know, call the shots behind closed doors without really having to be accountable to um, to anyone. And so I think you know, uh, European the, 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 the argument is usually that the European Union is this kind of you know super state which is imposing its policies on the poor, you know, national. Uh, 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 governments, but that's not really that. That ha- that is maybe the case, especially when we're talking of especially weak governments or left-wing governments, and we can get to that. Um, but in general, I would say that the EU is a system through which the national governments are able to, in fact, increase their power and increase their unaccountability to um, to the national um, to their national citizens. And um, and so, yeah, ultimately, I don't think these elections are going to make that much uh, that much of a difference, simply because the European Parliament really has very limited powers and uh, has really nothing in common with um, with with a national parliament. Uh, you know, so the European Union doesn't even come. You know, is 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 even a step back from the kind of liberal bourgeois understanding of democracy, with all its limits, as you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, do we have democracy or not? Uh, you know, um, it's uh, clearly we have limited forms of democracy, uh, 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 problematic forms of democracy. But the European Union is is a big step back, even from you know that that kind of democracy that we've earned for ourselves over um, over the court, um, you know, over the centuries. Um, so um, so yes, that's why <laughs> I wrote an article explaining why the European Union is an anti-democratic disgrace and why we shouldn't get too excited about these. Um, about these elections, and uh, also arguing that you know critics of the European Union should uh, you know think uh, should should 
should know very well that simply by participating in these elections, I think they are also, uh, I think, indirectly legitimizing an institution which uh, I think is illegitimate. And uh, that kind of adding a democratic veneer to what is an effectively post, structurally post-democratic um, system. Um, so, yeah. Does, does the European Parliament at least uh, stand as an effective checks and balances to the European Council? Does, can it at least rein in the European Council? Or can the European Council, if they want to pass some sort of legislation and the European Parliament says, no, we don't want to pass that kind of legislation, can they overrule the Parliament? I'm trying to figure out exactly what role, if any, the European Parliament can actually play within the European Union government. Well, I mean, put it, most, uh, most laws nowadays, uh, not all in effect, but most laws are approved uh, through the so-called uh, co-decision process. So once the commission, which I, I, I stress once again, is the only body that can propose a law, once the European Commission has proposed the law, uh, then uh, in most cases, the European Parliament and the European Council together uh, have to, uh, they both have to approve uh, the laws and they both can uh, propose amendments to the law. Um, so ultimately, it, um, and, and, and what's interesting is that when they don't agree on, on whether a law should be approved or not, then they go into the so-called trilogues where they, you know, uh, the, the Commission, the Council, and the Parliament uh, get together again uh, behind closed doors with no uh, democratic oversight whatsoever and try to sort things out until they find uh, an agreement. And so, um, so yes, there is a limited level of, um, of, 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 of oversight, but, I mean, it's, um, it's really, I think, quite limited. And um, especially if we consider, for example, that there's almost no, um, almost practically impossible for the European Parliament, for example, to dismiss the European Commission. That requires an overwhelming majority of MEPs, which is almost impossible to have. And so the system is structured in such a way whereby, uh, regardless of the influence the European Parliament has in uh, actually um, 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 uh, approving and selecting um, the European Commission, once that's done, the European Commission is effectively uh, out of the control of the European of the European Parliament and and, and effectively acquires uh, a very wide uh, autonomy um, over which the European Parliament really has uh, little it can do. And so, um, so yes, I think the point is that yes, the European Parliament itself does have a level of um, of, of oversight and can you know limit the. the uh, slightly the power of the European Council, but again, it all happens behind closed doors. And so, at the end of the day, uh, the, the fact remains that Europe, you know, that European citizens uh, really have uh, no way of um, of even exercising oversight over the Parliament. <laughs> I mean, at the national level, of course, you know, we keep a, a, a close um, a close eye on what uh, our elected um, politicians do. Uh, and of course, you know what uh, you know what laws they approve, what laws they don't approve, and and we have the ability in most you know democracies to uh, to keep you know a high level of oversight over 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 our national parliaments. We can't do that at the European level. There's very little oversight that we can uh, exercise over uh, even the elected members of the European Union, which sit in the European Parliament. And so it really goes back to the the fact that what we're you know, regardless of the arrangements that, that happen at the European level, the entire system is structured in such a way as to really shut citizens out from all levels, uh, all the kind of decision-making uh, levels and processes. Um, that's really the, the gist of it. So why, why are we seeing this exaggeration of the importance of the significance 
of these elections. To you, what explains why this is being so over-exaggerated when, as you point out, this is going to have very little effect on what the future of the EU actually is? Well, obviously, I mean, when you want to get elected, you've got to tell people that, you know, (laughs) going to vote is important. And so I think all politicians, in a way, have to share into this big lie that the European Parliament elections are so important because they have to get people to to go and vote, and they have to get people to go and vote for them. <laughs> so I think uh, at the most at the most basic level, I think uh, you know it's, it's understandable why all politicians engage into this narrative. Uh, as we know, European uh, European elections tend to have very low turnout rates, and that's because uh, again, at a kind of you know even if they don't understand, maybe you know very complex architecture of the European Union, which I, you know, very uh, 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 briefly explained just, just now, uh, I think at a gut level, they understand that their vote doesn't really mean much. And that's why we've historically registered very low turnout rates. And so there's always this attempt by politicians to get people to actually go and vote in the European elections. But I think deep down, most people uh, at an instinctive level agree with what I just said. I mean, uh, I'm just making a slightly more complex argument, but I think deep, deep down, the kind of common man across Europe uh, will tell you the same thing, that they know that this vote isn't uh, isn't really that important in terms of uh, determining the overall direction of the European Union. Um, and I think so, so that's one element. And of course, the other element is that uh, European Parliament elections might not be uh, that important in determining the overall direction of the European Union as such. But they do, of course, uh, have have um, have an impact on national uh, national politics. That's really what the European elections have always really been about. It's about uh, you know uh, kind of shifting the political balance of power within member states. Uh, so you know, if you take Italy, I mean, we've we've got a coalition government with two parties. Uh, so one, the Five Star Movement, uh, uh, has the majority right now, and the the the, the kind of minority um, party in the coalition, which is the Northern League. Um, uh, got almost half the votes at the national elections, but now they're they're forecast to um, to get more votes than the Five Star Movement at the European Parliament elections. Now, of course, that's not going to change anything in in uh, you know that doesn't have a direct impact on the number of uh, MPs that they have in the national parliament, of course, but it has a very big impact in terms of shifting, for example, the balance of power within the government coalition, and that you know it's the same thing all across Europe. I mean. Uh, you know, where whoever you know wins in the European Parliament elections clearly gains an upper hand in the uh, in the in the in the national narrative. You know, they can claim that you know they've grown. They can claim that they they've grown in power. They can claim they, for example, that they've become the first party in the country, even though maybe they didn't win the national uh, the, the previous national elections. And so that's really the European Parliament elections are really uh, again about national national politics and national um, national balances of power. Um, and um, you know, I think that that you know brings us back back to you know my previous point, and that is democracy continues really to be uh, organized. I mean, continue really continues to happen only at the national level. So even the European Parliament, at the end of the day, you know, only uh, makes sense really in terms of, or mostly makes sense in terms of uh, shuffling around the balance of power within within the individual countries, and that's why most people go and vote. Most people that would go and vote won't go and vote. You know, to because uh, they, you know, because they want to, you know, vote that that group in the European Parliament. Or, or most people that vote for national parties don't really even know where those parties sit in the European Parliament, what political group they're in in the European Parliament. That's uh, that's how distant, even psychologically distant, they are from the from the European Union level. They're simply voting their party because uh, they want to give more weight to their own party 
within the national uh, context. That's really what the European um, elections um, are about. Does that impact then on national politics make these European parliamentary elections the most important in years? Does Is there that much of a challenge within the political structures of all the different nations that this will send a signal for the future of Europe if it is shifting in the rightward direction, if it's going towards fascism, or if it's going in a leftward direction towards socialism? Well, I mean, uh, clearly, yes. I mean, it's 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 going to it's going to be a signal. Uh, whatever the outcome is, it's always you know it's always going to signal uh, you know what the kind of uh, uh, zeitgeist is across Europe um, um, in political terms, of course. Um, but again, we're also going to keep in mind that um, the European Parliament elections don't always mirror the national elections, and so in a way. What we've seen uh, in previous years is that pe- the European Parliament elections tend to be very much a protest vote, and so you know people will go and vote for uh, maybe ra- you know quite radical parties in recent years. That's unfortunately mostly been uh, r- radical right wing parties uh, as a kind of vote against the establishment. But uh, but then when it comes to the national elections, they tend to be much more restrained and they tend to vote much more uh, moderately. And so we shouldn't, uh, you know, assign too much importance to, importance to the European Parliament elections because they tend to, uh, they don't always overlap with um, with the national elections. But I think in very general terms, we can assume that yes, of course, the uh, right wing uh, parties are going to uh, are definitely going to come out, um, you know, uh, relatively well in these elections. Uh, you know. They're not going to have uh, a majority in the European Parliament, uh, so I think that that's another point to recall. I mean, it's not we're not in a state where, you know, the so-called Eurosceptic uh, populists, you know, are ever going to have a majority uh, in the in the European Parliament. That's not the case because, uh, of course, you have countries where the uh, economic crisis and the you know ensuing political crisis has really. Um, um, you know, had quite a toll in political terms, such as Italy, where you've seen a you know a big rise in the uh, sort of what you would term you know uh, populist or ex- extremist parties. Um, but that's not the case for other countries. For example, I mean, if you take you know sort of uh, central uh, and northern uh, Europe, you know, where the economic situation is much much better, uh, you know, there's there's less of a rise in these um, in these kind of parties. And so you know, there's a Overall establishment parties that even though they're, they're you know losing ground, uh, they they you know that they still they're still quite quite firmly in power in a number of um, in a number of countries. Um, so I think again it doesn't you know talking of the, of Europe as a whole doesn't really make that much sense because the situation within individual countries is so different in economic, in political, in social terms that simply speaking of Europe doesn't really give you an idea of the heterogeneity. Of of the European landscape, where you have countries with very low unemployment rates, for example, such as Germany and other countries of Northern Europe, and countries which have, uh, you know, exceptionally high levels of unemployment, such as uh, countries of the you know, of the Mediterranean, uh, Italy, Spain, Greece. These are all countries that have double-digit unemployment rates, um, and so you know, Europe is extremely divided. Uh, there's a very you know there's a, there's a very strong north-south divide in economic terms. And I would say there's also quite a strong uh, east-west divide in cultural terms. Uh, so Europe is really extremely uh, extremely split, and, and, and these differences have, um, ex- have been exacerbated by the crisis um, and Europe's response to the crisis. 
but um, but they've always existed. And I think so. This brings us back to my you know initial argument that it's it's you can't conceive a kind of uh, continent level democracy when you have so you know such such um, big differences between countries at the economic, social, political, uh, institutional level, and um, and so on. So it's really kind of a uh, Frankenstein experiment that they've um, that they've tried to do here. And I think it's uh, you know what uh, you know what we're witnessing is a is a, is is really the consequence of a project that was flawed from the beginning, never could have worked. And uh, you know, and we're simply speaking of the European Union. Uh, now, if we if we if we concentrate on the 19 countries of the eurozone, the situation is that even more of number one, even more democratic, because of course you know when, if we're talking about a country such as the UK, yes, they're part of the European Union, and yes, they're subject to a series of laws and directives, uh, most of which are kind of neoliberal inspired and uh, subject to the treaties, which of course uh, kind of constitutionalize the free movement of goods, of labor, of capital, and so on. Um, so there's definitely a, you know, the treaties themselves are, are very much neoliberal in character, but of course, if a country has retained its currency, such as the UK, it still has a relative autonomy in deciding its economic policies and uh, and so on. And we've seen it these days, despite all the, the massive political crisis created by the kind of Brexit saga, you know, we, we still witness our relative stability in the UK in economic and monetary terms, because it has its own currency, which is a fundamental aspect of sovereignty. Uh, uh, countries that have renounced that sovereignty by uh, by renouncing the, the, the by by ceding their currency sovereignty to the to the European Union, to the ECB, to the European Central Bank. Well, in those countries, uh, I think we're at a uh, at a you know the the, the, the level of uh, the, um, the kind of post-democratic nature of these um, of these countries is even more extreme. I mean, once if you don't control your currency, you really uh, have you really don't have any control over your economic policy. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. It's the uh, it's the old saying that's attributed. I don't remember to Rockefeller, you know, one of these big bankers who said uh, who is you know, attributed uh, as saying, uh, you know, give me control of your money, and I don't care who makes the laws. I don't know if that phrase is you know <laughs> true or not, but it but but it's um, but it's a fact <laughs> that if you lose control of the money uh, of the currency, you're effectively kind of putting yourself in a, in a situation where you become a financial colony. Of whoever controls the money, in in this case the European Central Bank, and I think as another coincidence, if we look back to uh, colonial times, one of the first things that colonial powers did when they conquered a country was to impose them their, their currency over the conquered um, nation, uh, because um, because that's how you control a country politically. And I think we've uh, we've seen and we we have uh, ample evidence of. Uh, of this, we've had ample evidence of this in over the course of the past ten years. Look at what happened in Greece in 2015, when a um, uh, sort of a left-wing government was elected was elected um, to office with the aim, uh, with the demand of the people of overturning austerity of uh, of a radical turn in economic uh, in economic policy. What was the response of the European Central Bank to essentially shut down the uh, the country's entire financial system? Now. Barack has probably uh, spoke about this already to you, uh, but I think you know that really gives you an idea of just what we're talking about when we talk about the eurozone. Let alone the, the I mean, even more so than the European Union, we're talking of countries that have 
literally where, where democracy really means nothing, where a, a government can, where a country can elect a government, and that government can effectively be uh, forced to heal by its own central bank. Uh, this is a situation that is uh, is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, the American equivalent would be. Uh, you know, of the Federal Reserve uh, at some point, you know, shutting down a U.S. financial system to uh, get a government out of office. That, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and I think with all the problems that the Federal Reserve has, uh, I think it's, yeah, we can all agree that that's a pretty inconceivable um, scenario. But that's the scenario that, we're, that, that countries that are part of the euro face. Um, um, and we, we saw the same thing happen in Italy in 2011, where... Uh, uh, Berlusconi's government, a uh, government that none of us like, but was nonetheless effectively forced to resign by, <coughs> by the European Central Bank when the European Central Bank made a conscious, conscious decision of letting the interest rates on government bonds uh, skyrocket in order to put pressure on the government, uh, which eventually forced the government to resign. And this is all, you know, it's, it's, it's all pretty out in the open now. I mean, even you know, mainstream newspapers now admit that that's what happened. You know, effectively, the European Central Bank conspired with the Commission and with other governments in Europe, uh, mostly um, Angela Merkel's uh, Germany, to um, remove an elected uh, government. Um, that's so, so I think when we talk of the sort of anti-democraticness of the European Union, we always have to distinguish between the EU as such and the Eurozone. Uh, if countries that are part of the EU but have kept their currency still retain a, a level of autonomy and a level of uh, of independence. Countries that are part of the euro have no autonomy and no independence, i.e. no democracy whatsoever, because it effectively means that regardless of whose citizens vote and whose citizens get into power, that government essentially lacks all the tools uh, to implement um, any form of uh, economic policy that's alternative to the status quo. Um, so that, that's kind of the situation that we're in. That's also the situation that the current Italian government faced. Uh, it's a government that I don't have um, particular sympathy for, um, but it's nonetheless a government that was democratically elected, and it was democratically elected on a platform uh, which comprises a series of requests, including a kind of pseudo-basic income and, and uh, pension raises and other measures. Um, consequently, the government, you know, uh, when the time came to approve the first budget, uh, decided you know, in order to comply with its uh, economic program to slightly raise the deficit, uh, you know, from, I don't, I don't remember what it was, to 2.4%. We're not talking 10%. It's a very small deficit, which, by the way, is, by the way, is below the 3% uh, deficit to GDP threshold, which is um, uh, which was approved uh, in, uh, at the, in the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, which established the, um, the birth of the European Union as such. And uh, despite this being a very kind of small deficit, uh, nonetheless, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and uh, sort of the European powers that be essentially conspired to tell you know, to to to, uh, to uh, prevent the government from uh, even uh, running this very moderate deficit of 2.4 percent, essentially eventually forcing the government to roll back to a deficit of 2 percent. Um, so this is the level of control that the European institutions have. Even over, you know, we're not talking of little, you know, small, uh, weak Greece here. We're talking of a, a major country, one of the founding countries of the European Union, um, one of the largest economies in Europe. Um, talking of Italy, of course. Uh, this is the level of control that they have, 
even over a country uh, as large and as powerful as um, as, as Italy. <clears throat> so is the EU then doomed or can it be fixed? Because it seems like the political lines right now are either fix it or leave. So can the e- mm-hmm. e- European Union be fixed? No, I think it cannot be fixed because it was... Um, it was made in a way so that it could not be fixed. I think they, uh, um, you know, just um, just consider consider the fact that there's no there's not even a formal procedure, for example, for a country to leave the eurozone. And uh, and you know, many of the architects of the European Union have joked over the years of how they've created this system in such a way, you know, uh, a la Hotel California, you know, where you can join but you can't leave. Um, and and less so can you transform it at the European level. I mean, uh, suffice to think that um, everyone talks of, you know, uh, changing the European treaties. Uh, as I said, the treaties are, you know, in, uh, profoundly neoliberal. Uh, and so, of course, you've got people, especially on the left, such as Zorofarkis, you know, let's say, and others, you know, okay, you know, we need to, we need to change, we need a new constitutional uh, uh, Con, you know, agreement across Europe. We change the treaties and we make transform Europe into, you know, uh, fully fledged, uh, democratic, uh, progressive, uh, you know, uh, nation state like any other nation state or federation in the world. Uh, well, I mean, there's many reasons why that isn't possible, including, as I said, you know, the big differences that you have between countries and how would you work that out um, at the central level. But I think uh, at the most basic level, uh, to modify the treaties. You need unanimity in the European Council. So, 28, all 28 countries, or well, 27, if the UK leaves, that's not clear now. Uh, but you need all, uh, almost 30 countries of the European Union to agree on a proposal of treaty reform. That means that it's enough for one country to disagree um, for the whole process to, uh, to, to fall through. Uh, and of course, from a left-wing perspective, that means that you would have, you would need. Uh, socialist governments coming into power in 28 different countries, more or less simultaneously, because this has to happen more, you know, it has to be more or less synchronized, otherwise you end up like Greece or Italy. Uh, So kind of 28 socialist governments coming to power uh, across Europe more or less simultaneously, um, which which then agree uh, on a a proposal for radical reform and democratization of the European Union. I think you don't have to be particularly pessimistic to to see why this is never going to happen. And of course, it was you know they've made it in such a way that it you know that, that that's why they've made it this way because they knew that this situation would never arise. Uh, so I would say no. I mean, there's uh, there's no chance of actually reforming the eurozone, and um, and you know less so is that of all countries uh, sort of finding an agreement on uh, on how to reform it. Because, as I said, you know, I mean, what Italy has certain specific needs, like Greece has, like Spain does. You know, I mean, it needs massive, uh, you know, um, a public spending boost, a massive investment boost. It needs, you know, uh, employment policies, government-sponsored employment policies to resolve that employment problem and so on. Um, so these problems are very much felt in Italy, but you know, that almost, you know, very less felt in countries like Germany or, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, Holland or whatever, where the unemployment rate is is relatively low, where the economy is, uh, you know, growing a bit more. And that's because those countries also have different economic structures. They're much more export-oriented than they are uh, domestic demand-oriented, like Italy is, and so on. So ultimately, no. I would say there's no chance of of reforming the European Union. I think for the 
for the left to continue to engage in this narrative of reform in the European Union is extremely damaging because I think, uh, what, A, well, you're essentially kind of investing in what is an impossible, uh, an impossible mission, uh, taking you know, energy energies away from uh, you know much more concrete um, and, and uh, you know objectives, and um, I think, so I think that's um, that, that's one point. And secondly, you're also seeing seeding consensus to the right uh, because I think if there's one thing that we've um, that we've seen across Europe in recent years is um a growing demand for uh from coming from below coming from the masses for a greater control over the economy a greater control over society a greater control over these dynamics that people feel that they have no control over anymore uh because um you know they they feel that their voices don't have that they don't have a say anymore really in anything in any of the fundamental things that affect their daily lives and it's true because as i mentioned most of these decisions now are taken at the supra national level uh so that they're essentially taken away from citizens uh, and and uh, so that translates in in a number of situations uh, in a in a demand for greater national sovereignty i mean people uh instinctively understand that that the only level where they can where their, their voice can have an impact is the national level they're never going to have a, a say at the European level, but at the national level, they can still have a say. And so I think that's why we're witnessing this growing anti-EU sentiment, you know, across Europe, um, which I would say is at the most basic level, apolitical. I mean, it's just a, a demand for greater control, greater democracy. Uh, I think the, um, the, the slogan uh, for Brexit, which was take back control, which most leftists you know, last that, oh, you know, it's a ridiculous slogan, uh, as if you could take back control in today's globalized world. Haha. <laughs> well, it's actually actually nothing to laugh about. I think that's a very legitimate concern and a very legitimate demand. And the problem is that these legitimate democratic demands are being monopolized by the right, uh, which, of course, then, you know, uses those demands and, and, and directs those demands um, in ways that are of uh, you know to benefit their own narrative and so they direct people's uh, you know angst against uh, immigrants or whatever um but i think what what we're lacking is a uh, is a, a radical socialist left in europe that is able to uh, pick up those demands and to translate those demands for greater control and greater democracy in a demand for greater you know for for a, a progressive vision of national sovereignty, a progressive vision of self-determination. Um, I think that, that that's really what we're lacking uh, in Europe today. And I think, you know, uh, for people, you know, when people like Varoufakis and others continue to peddle this Remain and Reform um, narrative, they're really, um, they're really uh, ultimately, you know, helping the, helping the right. Um, so I think really the only option that countries have is to opt out of the European Union as such. Uh, there's, there's really no middle way. Um, and I think it's often said, yes, it would be great if we could do that, you know, consensually when all countries come together and agree, you know, that this isn't working until we, you know, uh, sit around a table and, you know, and, 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 and you know, uh, decide to, you know, I don't know, for example, disband the euro or whatever. That, that's never going to happen for the reasons that I said before. So even though that might be agreeable, I think the only uh, real option the countries uh, face is to um, unilaterally exit the um, exit the eurozone or and or the the European Union, um, and and I think you know that that can only happen at a uh, you know that's never going to happen across Europe all at the same time as I mentioned that uh, you know. Uh, Situations are going to arise in each single country where the contradictions of the system are so extreme that they 
they explode and they um you know they 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 create situations such as uh you know um the such as you know brexit in the u k or the situation that Greece came close in twenty fifteen you know where of course you know a lot of people were saying that Greece you know uh, um faced a real um you know there was a real uh, risk or opportunity i would say of Greece exiting the the eurozone now that of course didn't happen as we all know um but i think this is where this is where we're at um that said i think without a uh, a political push without someone really um taking up the battle and and someone really uh, championing the question of uh of a euro exit or an exit from the european union uh uh from a socialist left wing perspective um then i think the system could could still hold up for for some time i mean you know people uh, have a you know very high tolerance for um, especially nowadays, you know, where the left is, you know, the organized left, organized left is so weak. People have a very high tolerance for uh, sort of, you know, for, for for unemployment, for poverty, and uh, whatnot. And so, what we're witnessing is that, you know, unless there's a movement that is able to uh, to translate this, uh, this, uh, this 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 angst into a, uh, a political platform. Then you know, I mean, the European Union and the Eurozone still has the means to kind of, uh, you know, stay stay afloat. Uh, but it's going to stay afloat more or less, you know, in the, you know, in with you well, know, the, the way it is now, not in any uh, meaningfully reformed way. One last question for you, Thomas. We've been speaking with Thomas Vazzi. Mm-hmm. He wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, The European Union is an Anti-Democratic Disgrace. You can follow Thomas on Twitter at Battle for Europe, and you can find out more about him at thomasfazi.net. That's F-A-Z-I dot net. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response, and I'm not going to ask you what's worse, the European Union or the song Hotel California, because we all know it's the song Hotel California. But uh, So what right now what we're going through is what uh, England is going through, what Britain's going through right now is Brexit. Mm-hmm. We've seen how mm-hmm. difficult these negotiations have been, how problematic mm-hmm. it, it has been to exit from the EU. Mm-hmm. How disastrous mm-hmm. would it be if everybody mm-hmm. decided to exit from the EU at the same mm-hmm. time? Wouldn't we just see this multiplied? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, a first thing to note about Brexit is that um, the reason it's been so difficult, or it's a, it appears to be so difficult, is that the British government didn't and doesn't want to leave the European Union. I think that's something that we should never forget. This referendum is really something that blew up in, in their hands. I mean, they, they called for this referendum. The, the, the Conservative government called for this referendum, uh, sure that Remain would win. Uh, and so, you know, it was a way of throwing a, a bone to these popular concerns, you know, against the European Union. But, you know, turned out differently. It turned out Brexit actually won. And what they've been trying to do for the past three years is essentially to fudge Brexit. Now, as we all know, Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, resigned yesterday, and everyone's everyone's response was, "Oh, well, she resigned because she she failed at delivering Brexit and so on." And I would fundamentally disagree. I would say that what she's been trying to do for the past three years is essentially to fudge Brexit. Uh, doing Brexit was relatively easy. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, all this talk about you know soft Brexit, hard Brexit. Look, I mean, when you you're either in a system, you know, and you're you're integrated within that system, or you're out of that system, uh, you know, and 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 which means you can, you know, 
employ all the opportunities that getting out of that system gives you. Uh, what the British government has been trying to do for the past three years is to exit formally, but remain essentially, uh, you know, uh, tied to the European Union with the same laws and restrictions that, uh, for example, on government state intervention in the economy and so on that currently exists within European Union. So, you know, what they've been trying to achieve is what it's called Brino, Brexit in name only. Uh, so this is really the reason why this has been so complicated is because they've never really wanted to, you know, uh, take up the, uh, um, the, 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 the the most obvious thing to do once a country, a country decides to leave, which is to leave with a no deal, literally leave the European Union. Uh, the idea that this would have been a... Um, a complete disaster for the economy is just pure scaremongering. Uh, I wrote another article in Jacobin just about this, uh, explaining why, you know, the, the, the idea that the UK leaving the, the European Union would cause the country to collapse into this you know, desperation and essentially, you know, uh, bring it back to the medieval times or, or whatever is, is absolute bollocks. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the country's trade has been, re- you know, declining with the European Union for years. It trades with uh, you know, very successfully with, with the rest of the world. And uh, so there's absolutely no reason to think that, you know, being outside of the single market would be a tragedy for, uh, for the UK. So I think that that's just, you know, you know, classic, you know, establishment scaremongering. That's, it's, it's worth recalling that the, um, I think the Bank of England, or actually the government itself had predicted that within two years, of the vote, of a leave vote, so not of exiting the European Union, just within two years of people voting to leave, uh, the uh, unemployment would have doubled, uh, as a, you know, uh, the uh, uh, country would have gone into recession and so on. And so what we've witnessed is the exact opposite. Unemployment today is at the lowest levels uh, since the 1970s. There's been no massive recession. There's been no massive financial crisis. So everything they predicted didn't happen. And so we really shouldn't trust these forecasts. That's just a way to scare scare public opinion. Um, so I think that when it comes to Brexit, I mean, I think that's the main problem that the government didn't really want to exit. And I think they, in that time, in, in this sense, Theresa May has been quite successful. <laughs> I would say uh, her time has been successful. If the aim was to fudge Brexit, I think they'd managed to do it. And when a situation now where there's actual uh, talks, uh, which are unfortunately even supported by the Labour Party of a second referendum, clearly aimed at overturning the results of the first referendum. Um, so again, you know, just the, uh, this is, I would say, the anti-democratic um, fallout uh, of, of, of being part of the European, of being part of the European Union. That's how much national elites don't, you know, don't want to get out of the European Union because it's a capitalist club and capitalists want to stay within the club. They don't want to stay out of the club. Um, more in general, uh, you know, so so in general, it definitely wouldn't be catastrophic for a country to leave the single market. I mean, you're just simply, what we're talking about is essentially a country getting out of a free trade agreement. I mean, that, that's really what what it's, um, <laughs> what it boils down to. And uh, you know, I think, um, you know, but of course, leaving the Eurozone is a different matter. It would be much more, uh, much more problematic and, you know, a short-term impact. Uh, for the exiting country and, you know, the, 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 the ripple effect across the Eurozone and you know, potentially across the entire uh, globe would be, uh, could be significant. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, a system that, that, that can't work, you know, and, um, you know, at some point we simply have to face the fact that, you know, uh, the system doesn't work. And so, you know, we should really start to, uh, we should be thinking, and a lot of people have been thinking about it, you know, I mean, the question should be uh, not, you know, is it going to be costly or not? Yes, there's going to be a short-term cost. The question should be, how do we minimize 
those uh, those short term uh, those short term effects. And I think there's ample studies showing that if uh, uh, even an exit from the eurozone is done um, um, is done wisely, there are ways to minimise the uh, even the short term uh, the short term impact. Um, this is far as short-term impact is concerned. In terms of the sort of medium to uh, long-term uh, impact, I would say uh, you know it would it would be only beneficial uh, for the exiting country. But at the end of the day, it would be beneficial for most countries, if not in economic terms, certainly in political and democratic terms, to leave the to leave the eurozone. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show. While you're uh, replying to the question from Hell, I was thinking about the term fudged. Exit, and I don't want to make mm-hmm. those into a contraction because I think I would actually be fined by our FCC. So everybody can think <laughs> about that at home, a fudged exit. Think of how that would come out, everybody. It's better than the German exit, which is also another version of that that I don't want to get to. Thomas, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Manufacturing descent since 1996. Think about it. Fudged exit. Put those two words together. Also think German exit. Put those two words together. They're fun when you put exit at the end. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Democracy is in crisis, kinda. Not that we have democracy or ever have. But the idea of democracy is definitely under that kind of pressure from every direction. And maybe that's because what we say is democracy isn't. And to be frank, we need to rethink exactly what democracy is. We'll have deep thoughts on democracy in a few minutes when we have the return of documentary filmmaker, writer, musician, political organizer and activist Astra Taylor, author of the new book, Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. Astra has a new film out called What is Democracy? Find out more about Astra's new movie at whatisdemocracy.info or go to thisishell.com and put Astra Taylor's name in the search and you'll come up to our interview with her about her film in February of this year. Astra first appeared on This Is Hell way back in the year 2006, which is hard to even imagine anymore. Let me put this over here and this here. This week's question from hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? What are you throwing on people you disagree with? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. This week's winner gets the book we're about to feature here on This Is Hell. Astra Taylor's Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. Again, the question from hell is, what are you throwing at people you disagree with? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1798, 221 years ago, in the town of Carnew, Ireland, a British army garrison summarily executed 28 prisoners who were being held as suspected members of the Society of United Irishmen, a revolutionary organization allied with Republican France, which aimed at ending British domination of Ireland by any means necessary and was held responsible for several violent uprisings that had recently occurred elsewhere in Ireland. Again, that's the French helping the Irish to overthrow British rule of Ireland. Who knew? I guess the enemy of my enemy truly is your friend. Without having received a trial, the 28 Carnew suspects were marched to a handball court and shot to death by a firing squad, which is the second worst thing that has ever happened on a handball court, the first of which, of course, is the actual sport 
of handball. The British took the measure as a way of warning the locals not to join the wave of rebellions that were sweeping Ireland, or as a way of reminding Ireland and telling all of history what complete pricks the British Empire truly was. Thanks, British Empire. We'll never forget how you were one of the most awful things to happen to the planet Earth ever. And anybody who loves the monarch and all its pageantry should be taken out to a handball court and be forced to actually watch a handball match. I know it sounds cruel, but screw the British monarchy and all monarchs. You can shove your divine rule where the sun don't shine. And thankfully, the British sun doesn't shine on their empire that often anymore. In Rotten History, 1855, 154 years ago, just a few weeks after the end of the U.S. Civil War, a massive explosion rocked the port city of Mobile, Alabama, where the Union Army had peacefully occupied the city and had stored more than 200 tons of captured Confederate ammunition and gunpowder in a warehouse. The explosion and the fires that followed ended up destroying most of the city's north side, along with several ships and boats docked in the harbor. More than 300 people were killed along with an unknown number of horses and other animals. Hundreds more people across the city were injured, though some Union supporters, including several northern newspapers, voiced suspicions that the explosives had been detonated by resentful Confederate partisans. It was later concluded that the blast was an accident caused by simple negligence, which makes sense. The Confederacy was a bunch of white supremacist racist doofuses who actually convinced the majority of the South to fight for a few rich families whose labor practices were causing poverty to sweep throughout the regions, ruining the lives of countless slaves and doing a number on the lives of non-slaves too. So those clowns blowing up a big chunk of one of their cities is not really surprising. To be honest, I'm surprised those idiots didn't blow themselves up earlier, in case you're wondering. I hate the Confederacy nearly as much as I hate monarchies. Wait, now I don't know which I hate more, uh, but doesn't matter. The Confederacy and monarchy are just a bunch of incestuous a-holes. In Rotten History, 1979, 40 years ago, an American Airlines Douglas DC-10 was taking off from Chicago's O'Hare Airport when one of its engines fell off taking part of the left wing with it, and causing the plane to bank uncontrollably and crash near the intersection of Tui and Mount Prospect Road in the northwest Chicago suburb of Des Plaines, not Des Plaines. All 258 passengers aboard the plane were killed, along with all 13 crew members. Two people working in an aircraft hangar on the ground were also killed. Two more severely wounded when the plane crashed on top of them. Several pieces of the plane also landed in a nearby trailer park, doing major damage there. Trailer parks are in the worst areas of the United States. If you ever want to take a tour of them, ride Amtrak, railroads go right by trailer parks. I swear you can hear the trailers shake as the trains go by. Look, I know the stories about the plane crash and how it's horrible, but it's not the living, breathing nightmare that is life in a trailer park. Anyway, back to rotten history. It was later determined that the jet engine had fallen off due to structural damage caused by maintenance shortcuts taken two months earlier. And I'm betting the people who took those maintenance shortcuts, sadly, now live in a trailer park. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, Democracy is in Crisis in that we don't have democracy and never have and maybe never will. Immigration reforms never work because they center on the concerns of class, which leads to their inhumanity. Psychedelics are back as therapy in our increasingly desperate and depressing times. During the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin honors the late, great Theater Ublock member, 
Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beta O'Rourke. We want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon on Saturday, December 27th. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell, others for supporting the show at thisishell.com, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. Yes, this is hell. Democracy is in crisis. That is, whatever we have is in crisis, but I'm not really sure this is democracy, or for that matter if we've ever experienced it or ever will, here to help us think deep into democracy. Returning to This Is Hell, documentary filmmaker, writer, musician, political organizer, and activist, Astra Taylor is author of the new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Astra. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Astra has a new film out that we discussed in February called What is Democracy? You can find out more about that movie at whatisdemocracy.info, and you can follow Astra on Twitter at AstraDisastra, which is one of my very favorite Twitter handles. So you ask, what is democracy? The word democracy is all around us, invoked in almost every conceivable context, government, business, technology, education, and media. At the same time, its meaning, taken as self-evident, is rarely given much serious consideration. And you mentioned talking to college students about their feelings toward democracy and how you heard from, quote, a number of men who, once they realized how little they actually had to say on the subject of democracy, told me authority that thanks to the genius of the Founding Fathers, America is not actually a democracy but a republic, as if that were enough to cease any further inquiry. What does the argument that the United States is not a democracy but a republic, what does that really say to you? What do you think the argument is that's actually being made? Because that's always sounded like some sort of dog whistle or a coded phrase to me. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think what what I found on the street talking to people was that it served a kind of dual purpose. I mean, it always came out of the mouth of of, of men, and so this was also striking to me. But it it one it was as I say in, in that bit from the introduction that that you just read. You know, it was a sort of way of stopping further debate because actually, I you know, and I don't judge people for not having a lot of deep thoughts when I pose the question, what is democracy, right? I would, I don't know if I would have that, would have had that much to say if someone had come up to me on the street with a camera five years ago, right? Um, and I think the reason we don't have a lot to say about democracy as Americans is because it's not something we actually do that much of in our lives. So, you know, I'm sympathetic to people, but what would happen is that, you know, these, these folks would go, okay, well, actually, you know what, it doesn't really matter because we're not a democracy to begin with. And so, there's a, a historical argument against that. I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, the founding fathers were trying to make a, a political system that was, in comparison to the ones that they were rebelling against, more democratic, that had more engagement um, of of the citizenry, however circumscribed the citizenry was. Uh, so there's, there's that point. But I think what it does right now is it's invoked by people who you know, ultimately are trying to make an anti-democratic, aristocratic, elitist argument, and they want to make it in a, in a way that sounds sort of historically legitimate and palatable. And uh, it points to, I think, 
a, a deeper problem of our age, um, which is that there are some sort of proudly anti-democratic people at this moment. We often hear that we are living in a populist moment, that there are populists on the right and populists on the left. In other words, that there's too much unruly passion from the masses. Um, I'm frustrated by that way of framing things. I think what we're seeing actually is a split. Uh, I think we're seeing the old marriage between capitalism and democracies, that sort of, you know, uh, idea that, that came about after 1989. We're seeing that split, and we're seeing some people really return to this idea or take on this idea of democracy. We need a new economic system to really have democracy. And then we're seeing other people are saying, well, actually, you know what? Democracy is, uh, you know, uh, challenges my status as an elite. So, I don't want anything to do with it. I care more about the American dream. You know, this is a republic, not a democracy. And so kind of returning to these, these their conservative roots in a way. But a Republican is just a, Repu- a republic is just a representative democracy. It's just another form of democracy, or at least that's what James Madison was saying in the Federalist Papers. So I've been trying to figure out a way where I can just quickly say to people, Try kind of end that conversation. And because I'm from Detroit, uh, this is the thing that I came up with. It's telling somebody, you know, uh, if somebody says, look, I don't drive a Ford, I drive a Lincoln. Well, a Lincoln is owned by Ford. It's basically the exact, it's the same thing. It's just got a different name on it. So is, go ahead. mm -hmm. No, no, I think you're, I think you're right. Like this is the historical art, you know, point that I was trying to make, which, you know, a Republic is, this is a more democratic system as a representative system, not a direct a direct democracy, but that's why I think there's a there's an ideological component to why people say that, right? And what it's doing is covering up a kind of elitist impulse, and that's what we need to be attuned to. Right. And so, all right. So, when you ask people on the street, <laughs> "What is democracy?" What does it tell you about them when they can't just say "rule by the people"? Why isn't why aren't 100% of the people just saying to you, "Well, I learned, you know, in first grade, democracy is ruled by the people." So why don't we have that quick and easy answer of what democracy is? What does that say about us? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It says something about all of us, not just about the people I'm interviewing. It says that, you know, we 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 have this strange split where we're kind of sanctimonious about democracy. It's a word we hear all the time, and yet somehow we don't have a meaningful, robust definition at hand. So this is this was quite alarming to me. I mean, I I interviewed dozens and dozens of people on the street, you know, for the film, and then some of them made their way into the book, and very few people had a sort of confident and heartfelt definition of this term. So, so again, I think that it points to the fact that um, we, you know, we are given what we are given is a very limited understanding of democracy as periodic elections. So that that's the definition people sort of eventually settled on. Um, but as I said, it's just democracy isn't something that we do very much of. I think that you know, this and this goes back to the idea of the republic. Um, you know, the founding fathers wanted to create a system that was representative, given their sort of again limited conception of who counted as the people and who who would be enfranchised. But they also wanted to keep people at bay. They wanted a kind of filtering process, right, that would allow what they called the natural aristocracy to emerge and run things. And I think we see the consequences of that in the way that people. Are not they're not that politically engaged, um, even when they're reading, you know, the news every day and sort of in this panic about the crisis of democracy we're in. That's the goal of these two projects, the film and the book, is to say, okay, you know, what do we mean by the word democracy, and to kind of 
do political philosophy in an accessible, engaging, and relevant way. You know, and 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 the point is that it came from my own desire to think about the word democracy, but this word that seems so hollow and so abused and so sold out through the odds, right, with George W. Bush bringing democracy to Iraq, to Afghanistan. You know, democracy was a word I could almost, I couldn't even, I, I didn't even want to hear it anymore, right? And yet it's a word that really matters. It's the idea, as you just said, that the people rule. And that deceptively simple idea actually is really complicated, requires a whole set of conditions for it to be enacted. And, you know, we have to think about it together. You write, you were mentioning about uh, the whole process of thinking that democracy is just about voting. You write, typically democracy is considered to consist of one person, one vote, exercise in periodic elections, con- uh, constitutional rights, and a market economy. On paper, at least, there is no shortage of states that conform to this rather limited conception. By some estimates, 81 countries moved from authoritarianism to democracy between 1980 and 2002. Can an undemocratic nation still have one person, one vote, periodic elections, constitutional rights, and a market economy. Or, yeah, market economy, because it, it makes me wonder, you know, what explains this loose definition that all allows for countries that may not be democracies to label themselves as such? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, you can be very anti-democratic and meet some of those baselines, right? So are your constitutional rights, for example, are they simply negative rights? you know, freedom from certain types of violations, uh, as opposed to um, more positive liberties, right? Like the right to education, the right to health care, which you know, are, are important rights that we do not possess as Americans. Um, a market economy, what, what market economies do is they concentrate wealth, and wealth concentrates power. So that's antithetical to a democracy that, that you know, one minimal claim within the idea of the people ruling is that they should rule as equals, so they should have some uh, rough equivalency of, of power, which requires, that means that there needs to be some economic egalitarianism in there. And elections, you know, elections are complicated. It, what, as I described in the book, you know, it really depends on how they're structured. So, you know, one could make the case that we have one person, one vote in the United States today in 2019 in the sense that you know, we are not blocked uh, from from casting a vote based on all of the old inequities <laughs> that we know so well, you know, from that were overcome in the 20th century. And yet the way our system is structured means that votes are weighted differently. Right. So once ballots are cast, votes are very different in terms of, you know, how how much power they have because of the issues of, you know, how the Senate is arranged so each state gets to you know, senators, so regardless of population, the way gerrymandering works, where, you know, some districts are sort of malapportioned or have uh, larger um, uh, populations, also populations shaped by issues of, of race. And, and so therefore, people's votes are um, not equal. So, for example, you know, why we're talking about gerrymandering so much in the U.S. today is that some states and you know, Democrats win many more votes, but get less seats, uh, you know, ultimately in the state legislatures. So, one person, one vote is actually, you know, we're still very far off from that. And it's actually a rather new concept The the idea of one person, one vote is actually something from constitutional uh, legal cases from the 1960s. So, it, you know, it's a pretty new principle. We're still not there yet. So, you know, I think these very limited definitions of what democracy is are, are things we can kind of meet on paper. But that doesn't mean that they're substantive enough for us to really 
be engaging um, uh, collectively in determining the conditions that shape our lives. And so one thing I say in the introduction is, you know, the, the fight of our time, if the 20th century was about enfranchising all these excluded populations, then the fight of this moment is about extending democracy from the political to the economic sphere, right? And, and thinking about democratizing other areas of our lives so that we can be more equal and have more uh, shared power and become more democratic. So we need to not just be complacent about what democracy is, but rather, you know, rethink it and, and reimagine it and think about what the challenges of this moment are. If we don't have a clear conception of something, in this case, democracy, mm-hmm. that has eluded us, then how can that thing be in crisis? We don't know what yeah. it is. We've never really attained the undefinable thing of democracy, and yet we're in danger of losing it. So what is it that we do feel is in crisis, if not democracy? What really is in crisis? Well, I think, you know, I tried to get to this paradox with the title, right? So the title of the book is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And I'm really trying to come up with a phrase that captures my own personal feelings of ambivalence and also of of fear, right? Because we are in a moment where things are feel as though they're moving, where feel, things feel as though they're moving backwards. And so what I'm trying to get at with that is the fact that, you know, we don't have anything that resembles a democracy in, in my book. In fact, I, you know, we live in an oligarchy <laughs> and, and you know, studies show that regular people have almost no say over the policies that are you know, passed in Washington and in the state houses. So we live in an oligarchy. We do not have democracy. We never have. And yet the progress that people have fought for, that people have given their lives for, can be rolled back. We're seeing this in the fights over abortion. We're seeing this in the battles around immigration. We're seeing this um, in, in terms of the threats posed by climate change. And so I'm trying to get to that tension. And the whole book is actually about, you know, what I what I call living in the tension. And so each chapter is a paradox that I think is central to the democratic project and that helps to explain why democracy is so hard. Again, it's this deceptive, deceptively simple idea that people rule. And yet it's very hard to enact. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to enact even at the level of being an activist and having a, a political group that, that one feels is run in a just way, let alone to implement on a, on a, the scale of a nation state or the globe. And so each paradox, you know, the paradoxes such as the tension between freedom and equality or between structure and spontaneity, between inclusion and exclusion, who is the people, who is left out? This is something that, you know, we're, we have to wrestle with. There's the question of scale, you know, the local versus the global, the fact that we live where we live, and yet we're part of much bigger uh, social forces and um, dynamics, and so we have to keep those two polarities in mind. So the book is in trying to, in a way, make sense of why this concept is is so uh, elusive and, and frustrating and yet so worthwhile. And so I look to history, I look to philosophy, uh, to try to give us a bigger perspective on our current problems, but also hinting at where we could go from here. We obviously, in the United States, we love democracy, or at least the concept of democracy, or saying that we're a democracy, almost like wrapping ourselves in the flag of democracy. Mm -hmm. If we don't experience democracy anywhere, why do we believe in a democracy? Why don't we demand it everywhere? Are we afraid of democracy? 
I mean, I think so. The film sort of ends with this. The last question I posed to the philosopher Cornel West is, you know, do we even want democracy, right? Like, do we want to be free? It's a lot of work. Um, I mean, there's the old, uh, you know, the old saying that freedom is a is a constant is an endless meeting, right? Or the civil rights movement said freedom is a constant struggle. There's the sense in which it's so demanding and onerous. You know, do we really want it? And I think, you know, and so I think there there is a fear that comes with responsibility. But I think the alternatives, which are you know being ruled by something other than ourselves, like whether we're being ruled by uh, you know a technocracy or an oligarchy, as I said, or or maybe by an algorithm. Like I think these these the alternatives or a monarchy, which you were just talking about. The alternatives are so bad, you know, that I think it it sends us back to this idea of of ruling our ourselves. Like okay, we we have to figure out how to actually do this uh, because the alternatives are worse. I think there's sort of two, you know, I think I think we do have to figure out how you cultivate an appetite for democracy. So one of the paradoxes, the you know, classic paradoxes of political philosophy uh, is called Rousseau's paradox or the founding paradox. And Rousseau posed the question, how do you make a, how do you make a democratic people out of an undemocratic people? Right. How do you how do you create the structures so that people, you know, want to be engaged in this work? And that's why I think we do have to expand democracy beyond the electoral realm and think about how we enact democracy in the workplace, in our schools, you know, at, at, at lower levels, so people can actually sort of start flexing that, that muscle and, and, you know, figuring out what democracy is, because it, it's, it's not something that's just an abstraction idea. It's something that has to be enacted and has to be done as a verb, not just a noun. Um, and so that, in that sense, you know, I think you only you you want more democracy by doing it <laughs> you know one last thing i will say though is that and i say this in the introduction is that the people who are most skeptical to democracy right now you know are not the people on the extremes but actually centrist you know sort of people who are relatively comfortable middle of the road you know and uh and so it's actually that population that we should be worrying about and thinking about you know how do you cultivate how do you cultivate a democratic desire amongst people who, um, you know, have it pretty good and and would rather maintain an unjust status quo to, in order to not have their lives interrupted, you know, than work to better everybody? So is Joe Biden a greater threat to democracy than Bernie <laughs> Sanders is? In my book, 100 percent. What I make- mean, Joe Biden is a Joe Biden. I think is a, a symptom of a nostalgic politics we see on the right and the left. Right. So there's Trump, make America great again. You know the the famous MAGA, uh, and I think Trump. Uh, sorry, I think Biden is that, but he's the liberal edition of it. Right, which is sort of make America 2015 again. The problem is that 2015 is what got us to 2016. You know, Biden has been deeply implicated in many of the problems we're facing from deregulating the banks to ignoring the threat of climate change. You know, I think Biden seems safe to centrists, but he represents the kind of safety that's a huge risk, a grave risk to future generations, to the planet. And so, um, you know, and, and so I think he's, he's, you know, definitely not um, the, the candidate I would like to see running against Donald Trump. 
We are speaking with documentary filmmaker, writer, musician, political organizer, and activist Astor Taylor, author of the new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Astor also has a new film out called What Is Democracy? You can find out more about the movie at whatisdemocracy.info. And you can follow Astra on Twitter at Astra Disaster. So uh, let's see. Oh. You write that in conditions of a democracy, the onus is on citizens to be inquisitive and to question their own system of government. The political order became an object becomes an object of uh, intensive speculation and critique. Democracy, in other words, made Plato's anti-democratic musings possible. Can democracy spark political imagination? Is that why elites and the wealthy fear democracy? Because democracy, in its real democratic state, is in constant revolution, which sounds kind of Maoist. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, why do elite fear it? Because that's one reason I talked myself into writing this book. Remember, I said democracy wasn't a word that really spoke to me, but I knew enough to know elites didn't want anything to do with democracy, right? They want to maybe wrap themselves in the mantle of it, like they wrap themselves in the flag that's not actually enacted. So I think there is something inherently destabilizing about democracy. It's, it's, it's always going to be a risky proposition, right? Because when you have a democratic system, you're inviting everyone to think and reflect critically, even about the political system, right? So that is something that is, that is, something that is inherently unstable. Um, I think that one, you know, but, but we also, I think, can mitigate against some of that instability by helping to give people the tools to think democratically. And, I, and this is part of, you know, and to me, that doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean like being obsessed with the news or the headlines <laughs> or the latest scandal, um, but, but getting back in touch with these bigger issues, these, these fundamental dynamics, these philosophical paradoxes, so that we kind of have a... Um, yeah, a conceptual toolkit for thinking democratically. So that's why, you know, I, I do think it's sort of a shame. This book is sort of an intervention into the fact that political philosophy has been, uh, you know, limited to a kind of academic space. I mean, kids might study, you know, government in school, like, okay, this is how Congress works. This is how the president is elected, but not you know, political philosophy, which is like, well, hold on, how should we live together? What other systems are available to us? You know, what does it mean to have representation? These, these bigger meteor questions that I think we need to be asking. And so I'm, this book is an attempt too, to democratize, you know, political philosophy. I'm not a, I'm not an academic. I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'm a, you know, human being who, who thinks we need to think about this stuff. And I'm hoping that I'm, I'm trying with the movie and the book to open a space for us to think collectively about some of these questions from a, from a more philosophical angle. What impact do you think neoliberal capitalism has had on our understanding of democracy for the people who say were born in the late 1970s and have only known since, let's say, let's say 1978, <laughs> have only known neoliberalism? How do you think that may have affected the way that they view democracy compared yeah. to earlier generations? Yeah, well, I can speak as one of those people because I saw a full... Uh, three months of the 70s. <laughs> so I will speak with authority. I mean, I think what neoliberal capitalism does, right? So, so you know, capitalism means rule by capital. But what neoliberalism does is that it, it, it 
it values the market. It, it valorizes the market and it captures the state and uses the state to advance market goals, right? So what it does is it, it, it allows markets to rule. It's like, okay, let's not engage in any of this messy deliberation, figuring out people power. No, let's let markets decide because they'll go for efficiency, right? They'll allocate resources. Um, you know, it's this technocratic, supposedly neutral way of running things. What that has done is really weakened our democratic muscles, I think. It's also changed not just our social relations, but our psychology. So, for example, under neoliberalism, something like education, and I'm, I'm going to just go out there and be romantic, right? I think education is a public good. I think that we should be educating ourselves, not just as um, consumers, but as citizens, right? Not just as potential career holders, but as people who will be engaging in, you know, broad conversations and need to know about things really widely, not just in a specializing, professionalizing kind of way. But what neoliberalism does is that it turned education into something where you're trying to seek a return on investment, right? Because it's education for the market, because the market determines what kinds of knowledge are valuable and um, and uh, have utility in our world. So I think neoliberalism has really you know, been detrimental to democracy and set us back in ways. Right now, we're in, in set us back in massive ways. I think right now we're seeing a failure of that approach. And, um, and so we are in a moment where I think people around the world are saying, well, hold on, we don't want to be ruled by markets, right? But now we have to figure out how do we rule ourselves. We are speaking with Astra Taylor. Again, make sure you check out her movie, What is Democracy, by going to whatisdemocracy.info. There are currently 10 nations with Democratic in their title, all of which have very suspect democracies, Algeria, Congo, East Timor, Ethiopia, Laos, North Korea, Nepal, Sao Tome and Principe, uh, Sri Lanka, Western Sahara. They all have very undemocratic countries, and yet they have Democratic in their name. How much have the actions of nations with Democratic in their title or nations like the United States and the idea that we embrace democracy, how much have those nations ruined, and I hate to use this word, but the brand of democracy. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something I, I thought about a lot while making the film, right? It's like, you know, do we need another word? Um, you know, is is the word democracy just too corrupted? And so uh, Cornel West comes to mind again. Um, he said, you know, well, hold on. But there's lots of words have been corrupted. Words are, words are, exist to be contested, right? To be struggled over. If it's an important concept, or a dangerous concept, or, or a concept that threatens the elite, of course they're going to want to take it away and, and hollow it out. You know, and he said, you know, look at the way love has been misused and abused, you know, in, in all these cheesy advertisements and to sell us things, you know, but you don't give up on love, so, you know, let's not give up on, on democracy. And, you know, in fact, the last line from uh, the social feminist Sylvia Federici in the, in the movie is, you know, democracy is worth fighting for, but it's it matters how we define it. And we have to define democracy from below. It's not a gift from on high, right? It's not just these privileges that were granted periodically. And so I think I think the word is the word is co-opted because it's powerful. And you know, this is just something we have to engage with. We can't just keep coming up with new terms because um because you know someone's trying to distort their meaning. I do think, however, you know, we can 
add other terms to the mix. So I'm very heartened by the return of socialism in the national discourse and people talking about democratic socialism. So I think what that gets at is that, uh, you know, to have a more robust democracy to move towards a democratic horizon, we need to change our economic system uh, into one where where capital, where markets no longer rule. And socialism, um, you know, a more socialist economy would would in my opinion, move us in that direction. But it has to be one that's democratic and the democracy stuff is really hard and we have to figure that out, you know? So words matter and we should fight for it. We should fight for them and also recognize that words evolve. And that's one of why, that's part of why I like the word democracy. The demos have power, kratos. Who we are as a people, who is included, that can change and evolve. How we rule, that can change and evolve. So, you know, it's a, it's a concept that can seem kind of vague and mealy mouth, or it can seem like one that actually what's neat about it is that we can keep renewing it, reinventing it. uh, And, you know, and we're not, we're not done with it. We might not even know what democracy is yet. Is there a demos? Is there like a a people, a common good? Does that actually exist? Um, I I don't think it just exists out there in the world in some sort of platonic form that we can just pluck from the sky. I think it's something that we have to cultivate and and generate. So I think it's it's something that we have to create together. Um, it's not some sort of pre-existing pre-existing thing. That's part of why it's tricky. Is capitalism the crisis in democracy? It's one of them. I don't think we can pin all of our problems on on capitalism because you know domination precedes capitalism, patriarchy precedes capitalism. But right now, capitalism is the the elephant in the room that we're going to have to uh, contend with. And and what's encouraging about this moment is that more and more people agree. The recent poll that said over forty percent of Americans think socialism sounds appealing. I mean, this is. This, that used to be an unsayable thing, and uh, it's it's not anymore. So I don't think transcending capitalism, you know, will solve all of our human dilemmas. In fact, what I think I think if we could um, get into if we could evolve into a more egalitarian economic system, call it democratic socialism, call it what you will. I think what would happen is uh, we would have more interesting democratic debates, right? Because then instead of having to, you know, figure out how we uh, deal with the fact that billionaires are hiding their profits in, you know, tax shelters, right, which is a really banal problem, actually. We could start digging into really interesting, important, urgent, and thorny questions like, hold on, how do you create an equitable society under conditions of, you know, where where there are ecological limits, right? Like, how do you actually um, run things uh, together collectively so that people have a voice and, and you know, feel that they're their decision-making matters. Like, there's so many democratic questions we don't really get to engage with because they're off the table under our current regime. Damn it, now you touched on my question from hell for you. We've been speaking with documentary filmmaker, writer, musician, political organizer, activist Astra Taylor, author of the new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Astra has a new film out as well called What is Democracy? Find out more about Astra's new movie at whatisdemocracy.info. You can follow Astra on Twitter at Astra Disaster. One last question for you, Astra, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How does climate change affect what democracy is? If it does, how does democracy change 
with global warming? Does it make democracy even more important? Yeah, I think it intensifies this moment of crisis. The Greek word crisis actually was one about the body, and it was this moment in the in a disease where the, you you either uh, cure yourself, get cured, I don't know, or 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 um, or die, right? And so it, it feels like we're at a kind of similar uh, fork in the road as as a species. I mean, I think that climate change, um, you know, it it poses some really stark uh, challenges for us. But at the same time, it could be a catalyst that helps us usher in a more democratic world. I mean, I think in the book, I talk about how climate change brings uh, one paradox into intense focus, the the question of time. The fact that, you know, the the people, uh, future generations are not part of our demos. Right, the demos is actually the people who live now, and then um, dead people who made the rules and the laws and the constitutions under which we live. Right, and so I think it challenges us not only to remake our economy so that it's sustainable, um, to think about how we equitably share the Earth's limited resources, but also how we how we enfranchise people who aren't aren't with us yet, and in a progressive way, not in a, a BS right wing uh, rights of the fetus kind of way. Astra, it's always a pleasure. And I just want to mention to our audience, if you are not familiar with the philosopher Slavoj Zizek, uh, Astra has a fantastic film about him from 2005 called Zizek, and her 2008 film, Examined Life, is also spectacular. She's a co-founder of the Debt Collective, a resource to help dispute debt. And you can find out more about Debt Collective at debtcollective.org. Why? Because Astra is an awesome human being. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Astra. Hey, anytime. Thanks for having me. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. <clears throat> yes, cough button. I was only taught about that when I was 14 years old, so I could, I should know where that is by now. Immigration reform never seems to work. It only seems to be getting worse and worse with more and more inhumane policies and restrictions on immigration. So why can't we come up with a humanitarian immigration policy? We'll find out what the real obstacles are to immigration when we hear from human rights scholar Susie Lee, who wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders. Find Susie's writing at catalyst-journal.org. Susie is director of the Human Rights Program in the Department of Human Development at Binghamton University. So, Alex, what have you been up to on uh, that uh, social media? Oh, sorry. I lost a contact. I was searching on the floor, not on social media in the studio. Uh, well, the most fun thing I did all week is I harassed a woman online. <laughs> Dude! Uh, don't worry. She deserved it. She works for the <laughs> New York Times. Uh, do you remember this week? I know you complained about this uh, person, too. Do you remember the person the who Patreon tried to... Podcast. On the Patreon podcast. Uh, the uh, reporter who tried... Sydney Ember, who tried to uh, catch Bernie. And, like... I don't even like Bernie Sanders, mostly for trolling reasons. Uh, but she tried to catch him in a gotcha about being in Nicaragua in the 80s, which was like 70 years ago, <laughs> and trying to find out whether he had heard anti-American chants and whether he left a rally in Managua because he heard anti-American chants. 
Uh, and that was the entire point of her interview. So I said she effing sucks. Yeah, you and said I, mean things to her. Uh, what I really didn't get about that is Jill Filipovich, somebody who I generally like her writing generally. Mm-hmm. At the New York Times, she wrote this article about uh, how Joe Biden, Joe Biden is not the answer for the Democratic Party. And she, I think that was on, on the Monday Times, I think, uh, like the day of this. I think it was the same day of the publication of the Bernie Sanders really weird hatchet job that they had on the front page about trying to like red bait him and McCarthyism him into being some sort of communist you know spooky guy but Jill Filipovich actually on Twitter she defended uh, the writer saying that uh, Bernie Sanders was acting like Donald Trump and that he was really mean to the uh, writer by saying you just don't understand what I'm saying which clearly she didn't understand what he was saying he was talking about historical context that she could not grasp. So I was really just disappointed that Jill Filipovich would run to this person's defense. You don't need to run to somebody's defense. That re- that reporter, that journalist should be able to take any criticism. Uh, yeah. Also, I think it was very interesting that the whole point of uh, that lady's talking to Bernie was just to get him to find out whether he heard anti-American chants or not. She wasn't interested in whether he what he heard or the context of his visit to another country as a mayor of uh, a mayor of a city in America. Uh, it wasn't interested in talking about what he learned from them or anything like that it was just did you hear anti-american chants and did you get triggered and snowflake away from it it was a terrible job and and, uh, pathetic it it really implied american exceptionalism throughout the entire article you know it was it was like we are not going to be sitting here talking about an illegal war where we funded contras illegally to attack innocent civilians we are not going to have that conversation here i just want to know if us funding those contras and illegally killing all these people within nicaragua actually led these people to chant anti-American things? I'm a guest. Also on Facebook, I shared a piece that a lot of people really liked uh, that also ties back to our question from hell for listeners. And that piece was at Current Affairs and it was in defense of throwing food on people. Uh, Also, there's another thing. Past guest Andrew Dobbs got in touch with me about a piece uh, for Medium that he wrote with a group uh, called the Austin Revolutionary Organizing Collective. And it was called... uh how Communists Understand the War on Abortion. That's a really great piece. And then uh, finally, uh, people really liked a piece that I shared uh, by past... Uh, sorry. I, I still can't see out of this damn eye. Uh, the piece from In These Times uh, by Miles Camp Lassen. Uh, no one should ever listen to anything Rahm Emanuel has to say about <laughs> politics. Because he's uh, he's on the... He's a contributor of The Atlantic now. Oh, God. Damn, I got I got to get mayor so I can fail downwards like this. <laughs> it's time for listener feedback. It has been sent to us at Chuck at this is July's shows, all of our shows in July, because July is listener appreciation month. And we're going to end the month on the last Saturday with our listener appreciation and anniversary party. So all of July's shows will only have listener suggested guests on the show we've already been booking some of those shows already in early july so we need more of your suggestions like this one we got from san marcos a person named san marcos not the location hi chuck i seriously doubt that their name is san marcos by the way i've been a fan for a few years now and i must say Y'all's show has made me enormously more informed about the granular details of the helltopian torturescape we live in. I particularly, a word I always have trouble with saying for whatever reason, appreciate the way, I totally Tom Brokaw, particularly all the time. I particularly 
appreciate the way that This Is Hell covers climate change. From what I can tell, y'all are one of the only media outlets that consistently acknowledges the apocalyptic severity of the problem. Anyway, wanted to make a couple of interview suggestions. I would love you love to hear you talk to someone from the soon-to-be-launched worker-owned streaming platform Means TV. The goal of the project is to create an independent user-funded media space for left-wing and anti-capitalist ideas. I also think it would be pretty neat to hear you have a conversation with Brett O'Shea from Revolutionary Left Radio about the rejuvenation that is happening in on the anti-capitalist left and the role of the show and others like it in driving it. Thanks for all you do and for constantly reminding us that this is hell. Solidarity signed a frustrated grad school dropout. Never heard of Means TV before? Never heard of Bert, Brett O'Shea? Frustrated grad school dropout? We will definitely check them both out as potential guests for Listener Appreciation Month in July. Oracle has a guest suggestion as well. I'm still way behind, Chuck. Maybe you've interviewed him in the shows I've got queued up. Nate Haggins fits in the doom and gloom section. You can find him on YouTube. Search nexus.com. Earth versus the amoeba. Good place to start. Used to be a money manager, now teaches freshmen at University of Minnesota, maybe University of Michigan. So yeah, he knows how to bring some hope to the dark side. Be well. Signed, Oracle. If Earth versus the Amoeba is as good as that title sounds, we'll book it. Although my money is definitely on the Amoeba. Ricardo writes to us at Chuck at com. Hi Chuck, this is Ricardo Santos Hernandez, Chicago-based Artist, I am an avid listener of This Is Hell and donator to This Is Hell during Phonathon, WNUR's Phonathon. Some of my best interviews that you have hosted are with guests that write about the environment and the current dismal conditions of our planet Earth, like Guy McPherson and most recently Jem Bendel. There have been many others that I have enjoyed too many to remember at this instant. Anyway, here are my submissions for this year's This Is Art exhibition. For more information, you can visit my website. Ricardo Chikanindio.com. Ricardo C H I C A N I N D I O.com. Or you can see his work on Facebook and on Instagram at Ricardo Santos Hernandez. These are works on oil on canvas and measure 48 by 40. Gracias, Ricardo. De nada, Ricardo, and listeners. Tell me what you think of Ricardo's art, and if you would like to see it in this year's This Is Art Show by going to ricardochicanindio.com or his Facebook and Instagram pages at Ricardo Santos Hernandez. Then email me and tell me if you like it at chuck at thisishell.com. Again, our anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show is happening on July 27th. And to show our appreciation to all our listeners, we are hoping that the art on display and the music that will be performed will... All be by you, our listening audience, or at least suggested by you, our listening audience. And we have a couple enticements to get you to submit your art and or music, or art and music you would love to see and hear at our anniversary party and listener appreciation party. Not only do we pay the musicians who play during the party, so if you're a musician want to play at the party, you will get paid. Not only do we not take any commission from works sold at the art show, all that money goes directly to the artists. But we will give 
each one of our listeners who suggested a, ga- a guest during our Listener Appreciation Month a free surprise gift. A surprise, because it'll be a surprise to me when we actually figure out what that gift will be. Matt writes, Hey, Chuck, I've been meaning to write to say I was sorry I sent you an image of mine a couple years back, and it didn't dawn on me that you might not be able to see it. Uh, This is somebody who's submitting art for the show. I am legally blind. I can see. I can read print, so I will be able to see it. I won't be able to see the color, because I'm completely colorblind, but I will be able to see it. Uh, Let's see. Matt continues, I'm guessing you could kind of see it because you're having an art show. Or maybe the art is tactile. (laughs) That would be really inclusive. Anyway, your show is awesome, and it's even more impressive that you have the energy to do it when you can't really see. That sounds kind of ableist, though I hope not as bad as Jeff's weird Cedric Robinson comment on the white show I just listened to. The White Show? I have no idea what that means. Anyway, I hope you'll consider my imagery for your art show, though perhaps I should take a hint when you didn't contact me for your other art shows. Here's my site again, just in case. mttphoto.com mttphoto.com Take care, Matt. Matt, I will definitely check it out, and I promise to reply to everyone who has submitted art for the upcoming This Is Art Show, because if not... In our show, we can hook you up with the regular curator of Second Story Studios, and maybe you can be part of a show some other time during the rest of the year. Travis also writes to us with an art suggestion. Sean Lopez does new media visual arts, video room space, performance art stuff. Would you be interested? Here's one of his works about Texas Wild West mythology. Alex, we got to start sharing some of these images on Instagram. I'll forward them to you so listeners can comment on the art at, that's being submitted to the show. Uh, so, people, if you want to check out some of the art, we'll be posting this later on this weekend, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe Monday. But by the beginning of next week, we'll have all of the art that has been submitted to us so far posted on our Instagram account, at This Is Hell. Bill writes us to consider uh, the artist Alexandra Schutz. That's Alexandra Schutz, S-C-H-U-T-Z, and you can find her work at alexandraschutz.com. Another artist contacted us. Ty writes, Hi, Chuck. I've been a fan of the show and avid listener for about five years now. This has helped played a significant role in radicalizing me as a 21-year-old, and I've listened weekly since. I wanted to submit my work, my artwork in hopes that I could participate in the anniversary party in July and have the opportunity to come out to Chicago and meet you. A bit about my work. I'm a 26-year-old Los Angeles-based artist working in painting hard-edge geometric geometric abstraction. My work is intended to be utopian, futurist, and socialist by way of using natural forms to subvert elitist and bourgeois pretenses of meaning and significance. I am to create work. I aim to create work that installs familiarity and comfort in the viewer solely through expression rather than through implied meaning or cryptic message. Thus, utopian socialist art for it is created to be felt and enjoyed without any requisite knowledge or pretense of such. Please find some examples of my work attached. I would be incredibly honored to have the chance to participate in the show. Please let me know if you are interested and and if there is anything else you would like to get from me. I look forward to hearing from you. Ty, listeners, if you want to help me choose the artists, here's what you can do. Not only can you go to Instagram and check it, this is hell, later on 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, something early next week. So you can see all the art that's been submitted. But you can just join me this Wednesday during This Is Hell office hours, immediately following our 7 p.m. Patreon podcast at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue. And you can help me choose which art and music we should have in this year's This Is Art Show. I'll share the art with you during office hours. Get your ideas and reach out to artists. We've had listeners help select the artists in the past, so help us do it again this year by checking out the submissions during office hours this week at Carrie's or by going to Instagram at this is hell. Simone writes, hi, Chuck. Alex, how you doing, guys? So since you're looking for suggestions for This Is Hell's yearly showcase, I believe Jessica Buttermore's creepy valentines are what you're looking for. This scan in Annex does not really give full value to her work. There are 20 by 20 centimeters mixed techniques, collages plus paint, and they're really cool besides creepy and somehow sweet too. Jessica is based in Memphis, but she sometimes comes up to Chicago often for her work with uh, Union. Jessica is an amazing organizer, by the way. So really, you should bother her to send you more stuff or come visit. Happy to give her email if you wish so. Best wishes, Simone. So that's weird because I've met Jessica. The show, everybody here knows Jessica, not only from her excellent guest suggestions that she emails us and her insights on topics we discuss here on This Is Hell, which are incredibly valuable, but also because she has been to at least two or three of our anniversary parties, and I'm pretty certain she won something at every one of those raffles that we had, which means thanks, Simone, for telling us to bug Jessica about her art. It would be a pleasure to have her as part of our show. John emails us about his art. Chuck, I'm a regular listener to the show and stopped by Carrie's about a year ago. It was good to meet you in person. Last week, I heard about the anniversary coming up in July and that you were looking for art to exhibit at the event. One strain of my work has a political bent and might be appropriate. What is the procedure to get considered? Keep up the good work. John didn't send any images, so if you want to submit your art for our upcoming annual This Is Art show during the anniversary and listener appreciation party in July... Send images of your art or recordings of your music and musicians so you know what we're looking for is music that doesn't mind to be performed at a party where the musicians don't insist on the audience being quiet because I'm telling you, during This Is Hell's anniversary and listener appreciation party every year, that never, ever, ever happens. That's listener feedback for now. This week's question from hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Our replies read on air following our next guest. The winner gets the book we just featured here on this week's show, Astra Taylor's Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Again, the question from hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com. Slash This Is How Radio. Listen following our next guest to find out if you have one coming up on this week's This Is Hell. Immigration reforms never work because they center on the concerns of class, which leads to their inhumanity. Psychedelics are back as therapy in our increasingly desperate and depressing times. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin honors the late, great theater Ublek member Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. We'll also have what we've been up to on 
our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker, Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. We want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party, of course. And the question from hell, we want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell, others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com. When they click on support, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want, This Is Hell. Immigration reforms have consistently failed at creating a humane immigration system in the United States, so why does immigration reform keep failing? Here to help us understand the inherent problems of immigration policy in the U.S., human rights scholar Susie Lee wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders, which you can find at catalyst journal.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Susie. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. You write the politics of immigration poses one of the most important challenges the U.S. left today. While the public discourse with demands for a wall or the panic over a migrant caravan may be hyperbolic, it only sharpens venerable themes that have structured the debate for a half a century. A nativist movement that sees immigration as a cultural and economic threat set against an immigrant's rights movement that argues for a more inclusive and liberal orientation. How much is that nativist inclusiveness divide our current political demarcation? Is it not as much Democrat versus Republican or conservative versus liberal, but nativist versus inclusivist, if you will? How much does that divide or inform our politics today? Um, so I think there's two ways to answer the question. I think that um, it's definitely the way that the immigration debate has been structured. So most of the way that the media talks about it, uh, the mainstream media, not you guys, but, um, you know, the main the way that the mainstream media talks about it, I think even among <clears throat> um, people who are supporters of immigration, it's often presented as this sort of these two forces that are kind of opposed to each other. Um, but the point of my article is actually to try to suggest that maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it, that the things that are driving immigration, our problems with immigration, are actually something very different than that. And that that representation of the problem of immigration as these sort of two opposing forces, one set of humanist, sort of liberal and inclusive, versus another set of nativist and tribal kind of racist um, anti-immigrant forces, that that. That present that that's part of the problem. That talking about it that way doesn't get us very far. You, you mentioned the shortcomings of immigration policies, immigration reform. Are these reforms recognized as half measures from the get go, or are they applauded as triumphs that effectively address the issue, only be seen as falling short long after they've been implemented? Because I'm trying to decide if the reforms are honest attempts but prove to be failures later or if critics know bipartisanism weakened the reforms to such an extent that they are known to be doomed? Well, I mean, the last time that we had really serious reforms on immigration that actually passed so that we can say, well, you know, here's here's the law that passed and here's how it worked and it failed, I would say that probably around, you know, in the 1980s, right? So the, the 1986 um uh, immigration Reform and Control Act um, w- was the last time that we had sort of a, a, a major um, piece of legislation that tried to take on the problem of undocumented immigration, but immigration generally. Um, and um, at the time, it was clearly understood to be a compromise. 
Um, because and it was a, clearly understood to be a compromise between those who wanted a more inclusive and liberal regime versus those who, you know, wanted a more, um, a, you know, more border control. And it was this, tra- it was very specifically a trade-off between, well, we'll give you more border controls, we'll increase criminalization, we'll do a lot of the things that we, you know, that that um, people on the left and human rights activists find so objectionable now in our current regime. Those were sort of deals that were made um, in beginning in the 1980s, that that it was specifically seen as a compromise solution. We want a, a more humane and open immigration regime. We want better conditions for the immigrants who are here. And um, and it was sort of understood that it was a trade-off that was made. Um, so neither side was happy. But I would also say that even among the things that were intended to... Um, so, for example, um, you know, it, so... Um, in 1986, when there were discussions about, you know, how are you going to increase enforcement and stuff, there was already a lot of pushback from um, those businesses and capitalists who are dependent on immigrant labor because they knew that it would affect them. And so there was um, uh, there were all sorts of um, sort of deals that were made. So, there, you know, uh, in the 1986 bill, um, one of the provisions was that there was supposed to be sort of an increase in um, in the criminalization of employing undocumented immigrants, for example, but it was always uh, understood that that, you know, it was, Reagan was the president at the time, and, and the understanding was that it was not going to be enforced, and it actually never was enforced. And I'd argue that people who were negotiating at the time already knew that that was going to be the case, but right? that was what made it palatable. Um, and so I would say, you know, politics is always messy, but I'd say that um, there was definitely an understanding, even at the time that that legislation was passed, that, it, you know, there's too many compromises made that it would have worked that effectively. And I would say every bill that has been discussed since 1986 has sort of used the 1986 template, which is this sort of trading criminalization and increased border security for, you know, some rights, some, you know, some subset of rights for the immigrants who are already here. And I think that, I mean, I can't go into the minds of the people who are actually negotiating these things, but I think it's been proven not to work. So I think that, you know, it suggests something about the people who are negotiating to get, you know, what their actual intention is with regard to immigration. And on those negotiations, you write each round of negotiations involves Democrats and Republicans trading pro-immigrant policies such as an amnesty for undocumented immigrants or the expansion of immigration in some form for programs to increase border security and immigration law enforcement and increase penalties Mm -hmm. for violations of the immigration law. Democrats and Republicans trading pro-immigrant policies. How are Republicans offering pro-immigrant policies? Because Democrats depict all Republican immigration policies as anti-immigrant. Well, it's um, certainly, I think, in are maybe in the last 10 years or so, um, it's definitely the debates around immigration have kind of solidified in this way so that often it looks like the Republicans are the anti-immigrant sort of, you know, faction and then the Democrats are pro-immigrant. And so it, 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 it certainly looks like that if you just look in the last 10 years. But, you know, the way that my article, I've, I've been trying to take a slightly longer view at it. So looking back from 1986 and even further back to try to see what it's like. And I'd argue that, you know, in the 1980s, the um, the you know Republicans weren't that opposed to amnesty. Yes, they were sort of the law and order side of it, but they were also you know they are also part. I mean, Democrats are also parties of capital, but Republicans are closely aligned with business interests and you know agricultural employers in the West, but you know in um, in the West and in the South, um, South Southwest 
relied on immigrant labor. And so they had an interest in the migration um, being stable, at least, right? That they didn't want um, the existing migration to be disrupted seriously. And they, you know, Reagan is a, um, a, you know, he's a political creature of California and is allied to the agricultural interests. And so he um, supported his his policy, you know, the policies that he supported, and, and, you know, were not... I would say the Republicans weren't so clearly sort of distinguished from Democrats. I'd also argue that, you know, um, because of the way that the Labor Party uh, or the Labor Movement um, has sort of had these ambivalent and in the past sometimes very sort of anti-immigrant um, positions in the past, um, certainly since before in, um, before two, the year 2000, it meant that, um, that the Democratic Party, which has historically been aligned with the Labor Movement, has you know, has gone back and forth on how much support they have shown to, to pro-immigrant policies, right? So um, to the, the year 2000 is a big break for both the Democratic Party and, and the labor movement in their um, in their position on immigration, right? That, that, um, that, you know, starting in the late 90s, but certainly after the 2000s, we can see that the labor movement and the Democrats are more sort of reliably supportive of immigrants than immigrants' rights, at least. Um, but uh, before then, you know, there are, you know, have you, I don't know if you've seen this, but, you know, on YouTube and stuff, they have, um, you can find uh, statements, public statements that um, Democratic political, uh, you know, famous, like President, President Clinton, for example, saying things that sound not that dissimilar to the things that Trump has, has said. And that's just because Democrats historically um, weren't necessarily always the party of uh, immigration or immigrants' rights. There was always this sort of uncomfortable balance between trying to figure out, um, you know, trying to protect the rights of immigrants, but also trying to protect labor and, um, you know, the way that 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 was understood um, for a long time was protecting labor might also mean restricting immigration. So are labor and immigration, have they been historically always at each other's throats? Is that part of the thing that leads to ineffective um, policy when it comes to immigration, that that confrontation between labor and immigration? Um, I don't think it's always. I mean, there's a lot of good um, research, historical research that's been written about the relationship between labor and immigration. It's certainly um, a very, um, like the stereotype that we have of um, of labor historically the labor movement is that it's been racist and it's been anti-immigrant and it's excluded, um, uh, you know, certain populations and immigrants have been one of them. Um, and so that's, um, there's some truth to that, but I think that a lot of the history that's written shows that there's also a lot of, um, it's mixed, right? That the labor movement is not a monolith and, and with regard to immigration, its positions have gone backwards and forwards, um, partly because immigrants, have always immigrant workers have always been a significant part of the American, you know, working population. And so, and that means that they've also participated in the labor movement. And so it's not um, always the case that, you know, there is this labor movement that is separate from immigrant workers that can have a very sort of anti-immigrant position. And then immigrants are somewhere else. Often, you know, immigrant workers have been an important, um, uh, component of labor movement historically and currently. And so so I'd say that labor movement policies have um, kind of reflected that and kind of gone back and forth. I would say, though, that um, in terms of, again, this idea of the rhetoric, the idea of it, which is that um, it's a very easy argument to make to workers to say, um, you know, 
uh, particularly under um, during periods when we have economic recession and um, and where ex- workers are experiencing job loss and and uh, decreases in wages and decreases in benefits, um, where their lives are becoming more precarious, it's easy to point to immigrants and say that's where your problem is because the logic of capitalism and competition in capitalist labor markets makes it so that you can sort of see there's a kind of a straight line that you can draw, right? You say, well, wages and employment are dependent on competition in the labor market. And if more people come into the labor market, then competition will increase and your wages will be threatened and your job security will be threatened. And and then and then when you experience something like neo like the neoliberal period where people have you know lost jobs and um and their communities have been devastated you know it's a very easy answer to give to people right to point at immigrants and say that's where your problem is and um and that's what's been done right and so i'm not um and i think so it's very um it's i don't so my the argument of my uh, of my paper is to try to show that that um that that answer is not always correct, and that we have to fight against that tendency. But I think that the tendency to see it that way is certainly there. Um, I don't think that that's, you know, that always has to be, you know, the underlying dynamics are often different than this. Um, but um, but certainly that's the way that the argument is often presented. And I think it's often very convincing for workers. Why has a strategy based around humanitarianism and liberal values seemingly fallen short in defeating anti-immigration rhetoric and support. What is it about liberal values that seemingly cannot vanquish anti-immigration notions? Well, so it's, I mean, the way that I think, so one of the ways that I said is that if you look at actually the polling on the, the way Americans feel about immigration, you'll find that actually anti-immigrant positions are, they're, in the minority, a very, like, you know, a super majority of Americans, 70%, 75%, if you look back over the polling, just in, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, even, where the immigration stuff has become so um, so heated in the political debate, there's still huge numbers of, the majority of Americans, the super, a super majority of Americans support immigrant, immigrants, um, support immigrants' rights, even support a policy that's, you know, that's considered really far left, like amnesty. Um, so it's not... Um, so, so it's not sort of convincing other people. I'd say that that generally um, support for immigration is widespread. Um, I'd say that, and that sort of tells us that people aren't sort of opposed to sort of liberal humanitarian values, right? I think you have to think about sort of what is the what is what people have to balance it against, right? So. You can make an argument, well, the, you know, immigrants are coming and they're looking for a better life and they're doing all this stuff. And, you know, and, and you can make all these arguments about um, human rights and humanitarianism. Um, but if people's sort of anti-willingness to sort of um, settle for anti-immigrant policy isn't about their racism, right, but is about their material interests, that they're worried about starving, they're worried about their own children and what's going to happen to their own children, right? Then um, it's sort of a, you know, it seems particularly cruel then to criticize people for saying, well, why are you not generous to these other people, right? Why are you not willing to be generous? Why are you not willing to sacrifice or risk or do all of these things for these other people um, when, you know, it's apparent when when they are themselves living under conditions, you know, of, of, um, of deprivation and stress and struggle, right? And so, um, so it might just be the situation of, well, I want a more um, humane immigration regime, but I also have to worry about 
you know, but but there's also fear. Will a more humane immigration regime or will the influx of immigrants affect my life, my material chances directly, right? And if, you know, if I were rich, I could afford to be generous, but I'm not, right? I, I'm right on the, you know, I'm in, I'm right, I'm close to the edge myself, right? And so there, I think that that's often what's happening is that people sort of end up having to make this sort of awful choice between, um, between liberal rights and, you know, self-interest. Um, and so, I, or at least certainly that's how people are made to feel about the immigration question. And I think that, that if you all, if you pit it that way, and if you are living under a, an economic system where people are, you know, living under very precarious situations, where the vast majority of people are quite vulnerable and, and living under very um, uh, precarious circumstances, then, you know, you're going to, then liberal rights are going to lose, right? And, and, um, and that's just, it doesn't say anything about um, the cruelty of the, of the people who don't all stand up and vote against Trump or something like this, right? It has something to do with the circumstances under which they're living, right? And the kind of awful choices that they're faced with. We are um, we are speaking with human rights scholar Susie Lee. She wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders, which you can find at catalyst-journal.org. I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting. you want to continue? Sure. No, I mean, I would say the, I don't know if you were going to ask a question that kind of leads to this, but I'd say that there is an answer to it, right? Um, and that's what I'm trying to sort of present in my, in my article. Um, but I would say that 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 the problem that this um, reliance on on liberal values, humanitarianism, the reason why it hasn't worked is because it doesn't take seriously the material um, conditions of the people who are asking generosity from. You're right. The question we should be asking is not how to get the working class to be less nativist, but to understand why the national policy so weakly reflects the preferences of the majority for a humane immigration policy. And you add the answer to a question like this lies where it often does in the interests and strategies of capital in most other materially relevant policy arenas. Capital sets the limits and constraints on most objectives that workers pursue, given its structural power in a capitalist economy, immigration is no exception to this. Does considering immigration in the interests and strategies of capital, does that lead to an inhumane policy? Do Democrats and Republicans alike, even if they are both trying to come up with a humane immigration policy, fail because it is considered through the lens of capital always? Um, I think so. Um, But I would say, you know, um, it's yes and no. I'd say that um, that uh, part of the problem is that you know a hundred years ago, two hundred and fifty years ago, when the U.S. was going through industrialization, but also you know had didn't have the a working population to support the huge um, uh, increases in um, production that was required of the industrialization project. Then thinking about the needs of capital meant bringing in lots of immigrant workers, right? Trying to, so it wasn't at the time when state worked, you know, immigration policy that served the needs of capital wasn't just about making borders, um, you know, open in a, in, in a sense, you know, much more open than they are right now, but also that they were um, involved in projects of kind of recruiting workers from Europe and other places in the world to come to the United States. They would pay for people to travel and this sort of thing, right? And so, so meeting the needs of capital at that time meant huge influxes of workers. I think that right now, part of the problem is that we talk as though that's 
still the regime under which we live, right? So when um, people say that you know the Koch brothers or or um, or bil- the billionaire class or or employers of capital um, want immigration to continue, want mass migration, want open borders because it serves their purposes, um, we are still talking as though that reality from 150 years ago exists now. But it doesn't, right? And what's changed is that, that there's not a huge need in most sectors of capital, and certainly the most powerful and important sectors of American capital, um, there's not a huge need to import labor. They can always offshore and then, you know, uh, offshore the work that they need to have done and bring things in. There isn't that much that, um, so that if getting labor here on American soil becomes difficult. They don't have to solve that problem by by bringing immigrant workers in. They can, they can automate or they can send it to Mexico or some other country and then just bring the goods back in, right? So that there isn't, so capital doesn't really have a labor problem that would make them support immigration um, and, and open borders in a very strong sense, right? Um, they might not, theoretically oppose it because more workers coming in, more competition, okay, that might be beneficial, right? But that, um, but that there isn't, um, so, so, so that we shouldn't think about, um, so, so we have to think about capital and its position with regard to immigration differently. On the other hand, so the way that I present it in the paper is to kind of separate out two different things, two different sort of concepts with regard to immigration, which is the flow itself, it's the number of people who are coming, and then the issue of the rights, the rights that immigrant workers have once they get here, right? And if you separate those things out, what you see is that capital has an interest in there being lots of workers that come in, but it's better for them if those workers come in without any rights really, right? That, you know, that if they came in and they were, they could be absolutely exploited and they could be treated in the worst ways possible and they had no recourse, then that would make labor the cheapest for capital and that would be in their best interest, right? And so what happened in, you know, during the industrialization was that because their need for the numbers of workers to enter was so high, they were willing to sort of do some horse trading on the issue of rights, right? So they could, they, you know, they were okay with with um, immigrant workers coming in and being able to vote quickly and all of this stuff because they were saying, well, we need the workers more than we need, you know, we need these numbers. The numbers are absolutely essential because in this particular, you know, because the world in which we now live, those numbers are not essential. Capital can be much more of a stickler on the point of the kinds of rights that immigrant workers can come in with, right? And so what it means is that capital doesn't want open borders, what they want is maybe an immigrant flow where they want the regime that we have now, where workers come in, right? Millions of workers are coming to the U.S. all the time, but they come under a regime that, you know, it's a it's a, a regime under which immigrant workers are constantly in terror of, you know, the, the immigration enforcement regime. And that's not just the undocumented workers, right? Even if you have papers, right? You are here at the discretion of the state. And, you know, and, and your permission to be here can be withdrawn at any time. It just means that it's an obstacle to any sort of um, political organization or standing up for your rights in any way, which doesn't mean that immigrants never do this. Right. There, you, there are um, thousands of immigrant workers who are, you know, um, who are involved in labor movement and, and fighting for their rights. But it means that, like the amount of the courage that it takes to do that it, and the risk that they entail in doing this are both real and they're much higher than what citizens are risking. Right. And so um, and so it sort of and and, um, and so when we think about what does it mean to cooperate with capital, we have to think this is, you know, capital doesn't need immigrant workers, but it benefits them if the immigrant workers that do come in 
are really weak with regard to rights, but they, they can't participate in politics in any way because then they can't fight for better wages. They can't help the labor. They can't participate in the labor movement. And it means that the labor movement itself is entirely weak, right? That's what capital wants. So cooperating with capital means giving them that regime, which, yes, then is harmful to labor, but it's also harmful to immigrant workers. Do we let capitalism off the hook by blaming white racists for our inhumane immigration policies? And what does it say to you about society when we're more willing to call people racist than we are to confront capital? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, the answer to your question is, I think I absolutely think that we do let capitalism off the hook. Um, and um, I don't know what it says about society. I think it says something about the way that American politics, and not just maybe not just American politics, but the politics in the world, has gone in the last you know, 30 or 40 years under neoliberalism, right? And that um, that that there has been a, a fear, or not a fear, but maybe an inability. I mean, the labor movement has been very weak and um, the possibility of confronting capital has been very low, right? So, um, you know, it's not just in immigration, but in a lot of other areas, we've, we've focused, we've, we've picked, we, we've, uh, we've allowed issues to be constructed in such a way so that the, so that, Capital doesn't have to be confronted in a direct way. I'd say that it's the same for the, you know, the problem of climate change and the environmental, you know, and pollution and other environmental problems. It's the same for, um, you know, it's the same for a lot of problems, right? Um, I think it's sad. I hope that we, um, that we're, I hope, I mean, I'm very hopeful in this, you know, in the last few years that, that, that we're in a moment where that can change. Right. But, um, but I, yeah, I certainly think it's something very sad that we've allowed to happen in our politics. Uh, has neoliberalism in combination with automation led to a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment? Has capital's lack of dependence on immigrant labor, labor led to a rise of anti-immigrant sentiment and the far right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is not... Um, so, I study immigration, um, but I, you know, but... Um, you know, studying sort of the rise of the far right or, you know, um, or nativism isn't, I study immigration policy. And so I tackled the question of nativism to some degree for this paper because I think it's important, but I'm not an expert. I think that, um, you know, this, you know, statistics about the rise of anti-immigrant sentiment or nativism, they're very um, fuzzy. I don't think that there is a great deal of evidence that there is a huge rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, right? Yes, there is. Um, a far-right movement that seems to be gaining some traction, but it still remains a minority. And if you look at, like, you know, American history, the sort of, you know, nativist, the nativist movements have sort of ebbed and flowed, right? There have been periods where they've been stronger and weaker. Um, I don't, and and yes, maybe some of the the sort of resurgence in, in, in the nativist movement and the far-right in the present day, it certainly has something to do with the impact of neoliberalism over the past 30 and 40 years, um, I think there is definitely a correlation between um, people's economic situation um, deteriorating, right? Your life chances, um, your, your losses and um, your life chances becoming more difficult, all of these things, but that, that, some, that there, there is a correlation between that and a rise in, anti, in, in xenophobia in all places. And to some degree, that's true. But I think that we should... Um, like we should be careful when we talk about this rise, 
right? We shouldn't give it too much credence and act like it's some overpowering thing because I think it's in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That it's this huge rise that we have to fight and that that's the focus of the fight rather than thinking about sort of um, where it comes from, right? That if it has this material origin, then maybe what we need to fight is neoliberalism, right? And if we fight neoliberalism the right way, then then, you know, yes, there probably will always be some tiny minority of the far right, you know, who are, um, uh, you know, who who do sort of, um, who are motivated by ra- uh, racial animus. But, the, you know, it will be a minority that is too small to affect electoral politics in any meaningful way that will obstruct um, the creation of the kind of world and the society that we want to live in. We are all concerned about the abuse that we see at the border. You point out that even those on the right and left, it doesn't matter. People are very upset about the inhumane immigration policy that we have. Why does immigration restriction, why does putting limits on the kinds of people that can come in and the numbers of people who can come in, why does that always lead to abuse? Um. So I think there's um, two ways to understand that. One is, um, you know, you. So um, one is sort of the logic of, like I said, that you know, you can think about flows and rights, right? The 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 inflow of people who are coming in, and then the rights of the people that come in. And so what we say when we say um, that we are uncomfortable with, or that we object to the inhumane border policies, is saying that the 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 right section is what bothers us. The the limit the restriction section you know, we're either agnostic about or we support it or, you know, something like that. We don't want to address that question. We want to just address rights. So we want to say, we want to give rights to the workers that come. But there's something about, I mean, the reason why, you know, President Trump or the nativists um, support the restriction of rights on immigrants, right? They don't say this. Sometimes they say this, you know, so maybe some of them are just saying, well, we hate them and so we want them to suffer. But that's not usually the logic. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in the press, right? That even separating children from their parents and, you know, all this stuff, they justify it by saying that it's supposed to be a deterrent to immigrant workers entering, right? That it's about the flow that they're trying to stop by by violating the rights of the immigrants who are coming. Does that make sense? And so, um, and so, and that, and that logic in itself is not, um, you know, that that's that's not actually um, an incorrect logic, right? Which is that that if you have a rule that says that people can't come in, but they're coming in anyway, right? Or they're but they're showing up anyway, we have to enforce it. Well, if if you don't enforce it, then you're essentially saying that we are not going to have that rule. Right. That's how rules work. Rules can exist on paper, but if you don't enforce them, then they're not going to. Then the, the so if you have a rule about restricting flow, if you don't actually enforce those rules, then the flow is not going to actually be restricted. Right. And so you can't. So then, so then, so then you're saying, well, then we won't violate the rights, or we won't enforce immigration restriction in a way that you know, in some strong way. Then if you don't do that then the flow will continue. And then the people who want restriction will be like, well, that's a problem. There's no sort of way of separating those two things, right? That you can't, um, we've, uh, a lot of the research on immigration shows that if, if all you do is 
you get people, even the idea of sort of chasing people down and finding them and deporting them, right? That already puts us in a regime where the rights of they're going to be arrested, they're going to be detained, even if it's for a short period. Like all of these things are violations of the rights of, of, of people who are here, right? And then, and then if you, and then if you want to do something worse, like you want to imprison them for long periods of time or separate from their, their, those are just sort of, um, uh, just, just, um, differences of um they're not differences in kind to any other sort of enforcement policy right and so it's just you know if you're going to have a restriction a regime of restriction you have to think about well you're going to have to enforce it somehow and then if you're talking about enforcement you're going to be talking about restricting the rights of those immigrants who are violating the restriction policy and so as long as there is a flow trying to stop that flow in any way will mean that you're going to be doing something to the people who are trying to come in. And that is inevitably going to be something not good, right? Um, we see the worst of it now, but honestly, it wasn't that different under previous regimes, right? Like um, um, President Obama was called the, the deporter-in-chief, but, you know, the, you know, the response of the Republicans to the... Um, to the separation of the children um, under um, President Trump and stuff was to show photos of the similar things happening under President Obama, right? We just sort of did it quietly because, uh, because you know, President Obama, um, you know, God bless him, understood that it was shameful and horrible that we did these things, hopefully. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know the real reasons why he, um, why those policies are sort of kept more quiet. But I think that, um, that it, it just shows you that if you have a system of restriction, then any sort of then you then you have to talk about enforcement and then and any sort of an enforcement will just lead us into this moral morass. You're right. The labor movement is also hesitant on the question of immigration restriction, issuing carefully worded statements about comprehensive immigration reform that both critiques a system that produces a subset of vulnerable uh, because unauthorized workers, but demands as a solution only a more rational restriction, not the abolition of the principle in its entirety. And you touched on this earlier. Given the stakes, why do we see this hesitation? The answer, of course, is the fear of a nativist backlash. Do we have an inhumane immigration policy with restrictions because we fear nativists? Oh, um, that's I. Um, I. I want to say yes and no. The um, the argument of this paper is that we have an inhumane policy because it is in capital's interest to have an inhumane policy. That's the first answer. But I will say that the failure of the labor movement um, to confront capital on this and to, because I think that because it is in capital's interest for us to have an inhumane immigration policy, then the only people, and that, 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 that's the reason why we have an immigrant, um, uh, an inhumane immigration policy, then the only people who can, or the only sort of social force that can change that, right, is the labor movement, right? It is, it's workers. Those are the, you know, immigrants can, you know, immigrants as a constituency can push, but they, you know, and, and they do have some power, but that really the only real social force that has the, the strength to undo this immigration policy um, is labor. So then the question is, why doesn't labor use this power to stop it, right? And then I think the labor does it, labor um, uh, has, it does, you know, it does oppose this inhumane policy, but it doesn't go as far as it should because it is afraid of a nativist backlash. So 
there is, so in that sort of circular sense, I guess the answer is yes. Um, but, but, you know, but I, but I would argue that we have to formulate it, you know, in precisely and say, you know, the first reason is capital, right? But the question of like, why have we been unsuccessful in fighting against it and overcoming it, right? That does have something to do with fear of nativism. You write that the material question when it comes to immigration is passed over by Obama with an optimistic banality. Quote, America is big enough to accommodate all our dreams. You add that the approach of dismissing material anxiety as worker error, quote, simply informs Native workers they are wrong to fear that immigration will harm their material interests. The argument itself is grounded in economic research that has shown that even if immigration can put downward pressure on wages initially, the effect is small and are often temporary because the resultant profit gains and investment will eventually lead to economic expansion. Immigrants also contribute to economic growth through their consumption and depending on their human capital and endowments through entrepreneurial activity or the synergies between their skills and the needs of domestic businesses. The problem with the type of, this type of argument is less the validity of the research than the disjunct between those findings and the actual experience of the workers who feel threatened by immigration. Why is there that disjunct between those statistics and actual lived experiences of workers? And what do we miss when we look at statistics that show that immigration is good for the economy overall, yet we don't look at the, you know, we don't atomize it and look at, look at it in specific places and the actual impact on people's personal lives. Well, I say even, it's, I wouldn't even say it's that. It's that, um, it's that you can say that immigration, you can do all this research that says that like, you know, Per each worker, right, who immigration raises the wage by like 1.5% or something, like these sort of statistics like this, right? Um, you can say these things and, and even prove it to be true. But if you are living in a historical period where wages have declined regularly, right, uh, a worker who's reading this, okay, I see that you're saying this, but what, what my wages actually decline. So how can this be true? How does this fit? Right. It doesn't. Um, and so as long as you're still talking about immigration and immigration's impacts on wages, it sounds like a lie or it sounds like, I don't know, something that doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Right. The, the story only makes sense when you put it together with um, with neoliberalism. Right. Wages have been declining. Right. The, the worker share of the product that they're making, all of this stuff since the 1970s have been declining and declining and declining. But that's not because of immigration. It's because of, you know, it's because of neoliberalism. And so um, so if we tell the story, but just, you know, all of these papers that they're pointing to, just tell the story by focusing on immigration itself and says, what impact does immigration have on this little community, uh, not little community, but on a whole labor market, blah, blah, blah. And they sort of control for all of these other factors. And then they say, well, then you, then it has this positive impact, right? It doesn't, like, you know, can you imagine someone who's trying to read it and, and fit it into their own lives when they've lost their jobs, when they've ha experienced wage loss and gone into debt and all this stuff and worried about putting their kids through college? Oh, it doesn't um, it doesn't sound true. Right. It doesn't feel true. if It's presented like that. It can't be presented like that. It's got to be presented as part of a whole strategy that or uh, as a whole story that explains what happened the last 40 years, because, you know, what's happened in the last 40 years is, yes, um, 
in neoliberalism happened and it affected all of these, you know, it had all these negative impacts. But it's also the case that immigration increased a lot during that period, right? So if you're just someone who's sitting there and you don't have, um, you don't, you don't have, you're not a radical or you're not on the left and you're not already seeing these critiques of neoliberalism as an explanation. You don't already have this as an explanation. Um, you know, the rise of the billionaires and all this stuff as an explanation for, for the losses that you've experienced, right? And someone points to immigration and says, look, here are the statistics. The immigration's gone up this much and your wages have gone down this much. You know, it's going to be more convincing to you than some, you know, some, some economist who's gone through all this stuff and controlled for all of these things and said that, you know, this percentage increase in immigration will have, you know, like a 1.5% increase in your wages, right? Um, that it's, I think that um, that that's just the wrong way of talking about this this problem. You're right. If material anxieties are the primary driver of working class nativism, then neither strategy of emphasizing humanitarianism or minimizing workers' material condition their concerns can lead the way out of the dilemma that immigration <laughs> presents to the left. The path has to be through confronting those anxieties and actually offering solutions. Here, the labor movement has done a better job than the Democrats, while acknowledging that immigration can impact wages. They proceed from here by making the argument that whether immigration actually has this effect is largely the result of politics, that the limitation of wage competition, collective bargaining, and an expanded social safety net can nullify any potential negative impact of immigration on Native workers. The problem isn't immigration. The problem is politics, our anti-labor politics, our anti-safety net politics, why have the Democrats failed in pointing this out? Why instead do they run to the argument of, hey, immigration is best for the economy? I mean, I think that mainstream, mainstream Democrats can't make the argument because they are, you know, I'd call them the right wing of uh, the left wing of the neoliberal party right, or something like this. Right. That they're most of the, you know, the Democratic Party has long been, um, I mean, you know, you can uh yeah, I think that lots of historians would say the Democratic Party has always been also a party of capital. We don't really have a party of workers and haven't really in American history, right, or in American politics. But certainly in the last 30 or 40 years, we can say this about the Democrats, right? The, the Democratic Party is not um, is not a party that has been um, opposed to neoliberalization. They've, um, you know, they've um, not just acquiesced to the transformations in our economy that have, you know, put capital in such a, you know, have sort of a disadvantaged worker so much more than than they than, than they were in relation to capital, you know, than 50 or 60 years ago. But also, um, they didn't just acquiesce to it or let it happen. They were often, you know, helped him. They were all they often helped to midwife this new system, right? Some of the the transformations in banking and all this, you know, and and deregulation, all of these things happened under Democratic presidents. Right. It's not just the case that Republican presidents sort of um, and Republican administrations, Republican lawmakers were the ones to make this happen. So then um, and, you know, you can you, um, I know everyone loves to critique Nancy Pelosi, but I mean, she there have been lots of Democratic candidates, even um, some who are considered to be quite progressive, like Elizabeth Warren, who say we are capitalists. Right. And all they're asking for is sort of a more gentle capitalism. So if you don't criticize capitalism, if you, if you, if, so the answer to the material question of immigration is to criticize capitalism. 
capitalism in its entirety, maybe, but certainly capitalism the way that it's been run in the last 40 years. But if you help to create that system and you are um, and you are dependent on that system and you support that system, then you can't critique it, right? So you have no option but to say, but to rely on the humanitarian um, argument, even though it's been shown for 30 or 40 years that it's been absolutely ineffective. One last question for you, Susie. We have been speaking with human rights scholar Susie Lee, who wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders. You can find her writing at catalyst-journal.org. Susie is director of the Human Rights Program in the Department of Human Development at Binghamton University. One last question for you, Susie. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think I'm just going to hate asking this because it's framed in such a way that's just awful. So, uh, let's see how I can word why this. Why do you ask the question? Uh, so why do you always ask the question? Well, I don't know. I just always do. It's painful, I tell you. Can we have open borders in a post 9/11 world? Isn't aren't the borders now more about security than economics? Okay. So, um See, I told you I'd hate asking it. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky question. I would say this. I think that um, the possibility of political violence is real, and we live through it all the time. But I also think that <clears throat> this, that the sort of combining that political violence comes from all over the place, right? We also have terrorism that we you know, we have we grow terrorists here, right? From and 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 um, and and you know we have many many incidents of violence. That happen, and many, many thousands of people, hundreds and thousands of people who get killed um, because of because of um, extremist extremisms that we sort of foster and foment here in the United States, right? So it, I don't know that it would protect us that much to to close our borders. Um, and the other thing is that the the incidence of terrorists. Uh, from foreign, foreign, foreign um, sort of grown terrorism that has come into the United States, those things happened even though we have this regime that has this, you know, even though we have this regime, right? So that I don't know that the existing regime has, you know, having closed borders has been successful in any way in protecting us from, from terrorists. I don't think it, it has. <clears throat> um, so that's one thing. The second thing is, um, you know, I think that to the extent that we focus so much on the sphere of terrorism, like we have to seriously think about like um, one, where it originates from, right? And two, what a war on terror serves, right? Because I would argue that it is not that different from an anti-immigrant, um, from the anti-immigrant politics, right? Both of those things are in some ways distractions from the larger question, which is the larger question of capitalism. Right. As long as we are terrified of being attacked by terrorists and as long as we're we're um, fighting over whether or not we treat our immigrants humanely, um, we're not going to be talking about a larger question, which is the question of capitalism when it does to our society. And I would argue that, you know, the kind of terrorism that we worry about, you know, we, 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 there's lots of stuff that's been um, written about how people get radicalized. Right. And radicalization often begins with your material conditions, right? Your life chances are terrible and you look around for a reason for why that happens and then you blame somebody for it, right? And if you're not allowed to blame capitalism, then you blame someone else. And then that makes you vulnerable to people who are going to take that frustration and and um and and that that sort of passion and 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 turn it into violence. 
right? So the best way to solve the problem is to confront capitalism. And we can't confront, and the most effective way to confront capitalism is to try to create a unified working class. And to create a unified working class, you have to do away with the distinctions that separate workers from each other. And the native foreign distinction is one of the, like, you know, maybe it's going to be a long, it's going to be the hardest to get rid of because it is one that, um, you know, it's bound up with our ideas of nation and all this stuff. So, you know, it might take a while to do it, but it is still an arbitrary and illegitimate distinction. And we have to work towards getting rid of it because it's necessary for a working class that's strong enough to fight for all the other things that, that it wants. That sounds a lot like race. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show with us, Susie. Human rights scholar Susie Lee wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders. You can find her writing at catalyst.org. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic article. And everybody who is listening, if you have any interest, and I know our listeners do, any interest in immigration policy, this is a paper that you have to read. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Where When you do, we will send you a gift, maybe a tote bag, maybe a T-shirt, maybe a stainless steel coffee cup. It's You can choose. Pick one from our site, again, at thisishell.com, then click on support. We'll send you a gift for supporting This Is Hell. Thanks this week goes to Jack G, who is also a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. So he wants one of our stainless steel camping mugs with his Patreon patron discount included. It's one of the other bonuses you get with being a Patreon member. You get a discount on... All of our gifts. Jack W. also joined Patreon to get the Patreon discount and requested a This Is Hell t-shirt. Joel showed his support and also requested the stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. And Daniel showed his tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air... Support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug t-shirt or and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com and click on support. Psychedelics are back, at least in a therapeutic setting. For those who are suffering in our epidemic of depression and unhappiness, that has settled in worldwide. That's right, decriminalization isn't only for weed, but it could be coming to LSD and shrooms, too. So what happens when society starts tripping again and psychedelics become a regulated big business? We'll try to figure that out and see the future with psychedelics in a few when we speak with freelance writer Garrison Lovely, who wrote the Current Affairs article, Make America Trip Again. Are psychedelics a solution to our political turmoil, dangerous, unknown, or something else entirely? While in college, Garrison co-founded Cornell's Prison Reform and Education Project, which works towards expanding prisoner rights. Find out more about that project at cornellprep.org. I'm going to bump this Beto O'Rourke thing again. It's just him talking about how much he loves the dead milkmen. Let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... What are you throwing on people you disagree with? What are you throwing on people you disagree with? All replies right on air right now this week. 
week's winner gets a book that we just featured on our show last hour, and that is Astra Taylor's Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Again, the question from hell is, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, Astra Taylor's Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It. When it's gone. Alex, you have all the responses to this week's question from hell because... If I read these really fast, can you get in Beto? Uh, no. I, I like him because of these things. Ugh. Every time you read one of these, I like him more. I know. That's kind of, one, kind of why I don't want to read this one. I just love how much he sucks. Yeah. Uh, Polchinello said, ah, milkshaking the fash. Maybe they'll get Trump during his state visit to the UK. Daphne Marks says, receipts. <laughs> Milkshake Wrangler, oh, Eat Fart 69, our old friend, said, insults muttered under my breath. What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Time is short, MFers, said, dagger eyes. And Third Cloud said, prune-flavored non-fat yogurt. Ooh. Uh, On Facebook, uh, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Richard M. said, shade. Vincent T. said, ditch dairy. Or sorry, ditch, not not the thing called ditch dairy. Ditch dairy, throw vegan milkshakes. (laughs) Not something called Ditch Dairy. Okay. Uh, Krimsky K said, the mug you send. <laughs> MGB says, bricks, of course. Jack W says, necessary citations in order to appear uh, to appear peer-reviewed to peers. Hmm. Aaron C says, copies of Das Kapital. What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Nick E says, a proprietary admixture that includes bear droppings, anthrax, and wintergreen. Check me out on Patreon. <laughs> then he wrote, sometimes I like to mix it up with the Avada... A kedav- kedavra curse. Avra kedavra. Not a- not with a B. I know. Uh, maybe it's the original kind. Uh, Peter D said, Steph Curry. Peter D said Steph Curry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ronaldo M chimed in with pasta fajul. <laughs> Lisa B said rabid squirrels. Steve S, a very large, very smelly fish with a kind of aroma that just sticks to the nasal passages for weeks. <laughs> what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Nick A says. Illegally aborted embryos, but nobody seems to notice. <laughs> Ray C says, mostly Yorkshire pudding or perhaps black pudding if available, otherwise spotted dick, which is surprisingly delicious. It is. Garrett L says, pearls before swine. James B says, my credit rating and a mirror. <laughs> what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Wally R says, a 89 mile per hour cutter high and tight. <laughs> Dylan V says, so very many bones. <laughs> Dan O said, other people I disagree with. <laughs> Shane M says the Detroit hockey octopus. <laughs> Joe F says LSD grenades. It's basically a glitter bomb, but each piece of glitter is a microdose. Nice. Can I get that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rebecca D says barbecue chip dust. <laughs> that S hurts when you get it in your eyes. <laughs> Eric T says mayonnaise. Since I'm throwing it at mayonnaise monsters anyway, then I can tell them to stop hitting themselves. What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Joseph D. said, subvertising stickers. Aww. Benjamin C. says, mutchup. You can only assume is uh, mustard and ketchup mixed it together. Is, yeah. Ooh, and oh. in fact, it a turns out idea. to be a word in Cree that means uh, having sex. Okay. Well, throw having sex at them, too. <laughs> Louis D. says, strows. <laughs> Bill B. says, in my least favorite response ever, 
Skeet, skeet, skeet. Oh, God. You know what that means, Chuck? <laughs> yes, I You're do. Ying Yang Twins fan over there. Mm. Uh, Jeffy D, our own Jeffy D, says, face-hugging aliens. Andrew T says, like all angry monkeys, feces. I throw feces. Very good, very good. Andrew J says, I fight in their, uh, I fight, I fart in their general direction. Scott M uh, says, subway sandwiches. <laughs> Joanne C says, a frisbee. You know they can't catch anything. <laughs> Gina D says, my civility. Brian M. says, makes me proud to be British. I'm throwing t-shirt designs like this. And then he posted an image of uh, Theresa May crying tears. And the tears read things like hopelessness and sanctions and fracking. (laughs) What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Fabio L. said, milkshake IOUs because I'm broke. (laughs) Gorilla G. said, sidelong glares and shade. Vigara H. says, smoothies. Jim P. said, newly discovered childhood anger. (laughs) Howard F. says, deep sarcasm. Rob H. says, dairy-free milkshakes because we don't need to harm any innocent lives in this process. Sure. And bricks. Zach A. says, oatmeal. (laughs) Pammy H. says, my voice. Steve C. says, pasta puttanesca. Tyler M. says, aubergines. What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Aaron D. says, the hate you give. Greg L. says, poisoned javelins. (laughs) Austin R. M. says, beehives. (laughs) Jack W. says, hardcover editions of Atlas Shrugged. All right. Ben H. says, quinceañeras. I've always wanted to throw a quinceañera. <laughs> uh, Mark R. says, gravel. Mike gravel. Is it gravel? Am it's, I pronounced? I think it's gravel. I don't know. Who cares? Uh, oh, I'm you know, big, he's the only anti-war candidate. He's also the only one who is 88 years old. Uh, yeah, the teens running his Twitter account rule, though, and I'd yeah. vote for them for president if yeah. I could. Uh. Chris, says, says, Chris S. says, I'm throwing a rod a specific rod, the biblical rod of Aaron, which will put forth blossoms and produce almonds as the evidence of my right to the priesthood of this sect of shut your pie hole. I do like almonds. Matt M says a glowing dot in the middle of their forehead (laughs) so I can recognize them in public. Eric T says I'm throwing down rap battle. And finally Schaefer M (laughs) says pocket sand. My response to the question from hell, what are you throwing on people you disagree with? Like two of the other people. I'm throwing shade because I like to use hipster terms that are very, very old and old people have already made them very, very uncool. That makes this week's winner, let's see, Daphne saying receipts, which is kind of funny, Uh, Krimsky saying this is hell mug, I do like that except it's pandering, Peter D saying Steph Curry, I don't know why I found that funny. Uh, ben H saying throwing a quinceanera, which the, just the the idea of an entire quinceanera being able to be thrown at somebody, I like. But this week's winner goes to Dan O. This week's question from Al again: What are you throwing on people you disagree with? Dan O said, "Other people I disagree with." So, Dan O, you have won Astra Taylor's democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. We'll be getting in contact with you through Facebook to get your mailing address so we can send it to you ASAP. Oh, hey, sorry. One thing. You got that email I sent from Garrison yesterday, right? What's what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. Not that I really think that's an issue. Uh, thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week. Thanks to Joel, Wally, Eric, Alex, Elliot, 
Rachel, Margaret, Rod, Shelly, Leo, John, and Johnny, and everyone else I can't remember because I'm exhausted from traveling through the past four weekends to visit family. And I just want to say one thing about uh, This Is Hell Office Hours. I heard this, or read this thing, I can't remember where I stumbled across it, about how the number of friends that you have peaks at age 25, and after that it constantly dwindles. Kind of makes sense. A lot of people, most people have kids, and then all of a sudden they get distracted by raising a family, so you just have less time for socializing, or you just grow older and you're not in a setting like a dormitory or living somewhere where there's a whole bunch of people your age around who all have some kind of free time to build friendships. I can tell you, if you are over 25 and you feel that you are fearing decreasing numbers of friends in your life, you can make more friends at This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. If you are somebody who is like, man, you know what? I have a dwindling number of friends and I want to make more friends. This is a good way to make friends because if you're sharing the show if you like this show and other people like this show there's and you meet those people you probably have a lot of other things in common so join us at carrie's lounge the bar downstairs from our studio every wednesday from 6 p.m to 9 p.m 2251 west devon if you drop by not only will i give you some this is how subvertising stickers if you remind me but i'll also give you a show related book if you're an artist or you know an artist that would be a welcome addition to our annual this is hell this is art show during our listener appreciation and anniversary party on july 27th email me your or their art and we'll definitely consider it to be a part of the 2019 show, again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our listener appreciation and anniversary party every year. And with listeners this Wednesday during office hours, I will be looking through the art that has been submitted so far, and you can join me in determining what art we should have at the show. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And don't forget, this is an artist-curated show. In other words, we do not take any of the money that you raise from selling your art. You get to keep 100% of it. And we actually pay musicians to perform during This Is Hell's annual anniversary and listener appreciation party. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, psychedelics are back as therapy in our increasingly desperate and depressing times. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin honors Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We're going to keep reminding you of our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party on July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Uh, we want to thank some listeners for sharing the show. Uh, we also want to thank some people for uh, giving us suggestions for guests. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms could be the next decriminalized drugs, as they have proven to show 
positive outcomes in those suffering from our epidemic of depression here to help us understand what that could mean for society and what commercialization and legality could mean for tripping. Freelance writer Garrison Lovely wrote this current affairs article, Make America Trip Again, Are Psychedelics a Solution to Our Political Turmoil, A Dangerous Unknown, or Something Else Entirely? You can follow Garrison on Twitter at G Lovely, and then the number one, Glovely One. Welcome to This Is Hell, Garrison. Thanks. Great to be here. While in college, Garrison co-founded Cornell's Prison Reform and Education Project, which works towards expanding prisoner rights. Find out more about the project at cornellprep.org. You write, or you quote Tom Insel, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, saying, the mental health care system is so badly broken, it doesn't even qualify as a system. But you argue this is not due to a lack of effort. The U.S. spends over $200 billion a year on mental health care treatment. Each year, double that what we spent in 2005. American suicides are at a 50-year high and increasing at an increasing rate. Over 70,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2017, twice as many as did in 2007. Why doesn't more funding, why hasn't that translated into better outcomes? Uh, I think it's because the paradigm of what you know, drugs we use, what therapies we use, have not really changed in the last 30 years. Uh, the introduction of SSRIs was like the last big innovation in pharmacological interventions for mental health. Um, and that happened in the 1980s. And, you know, from what I've read, they work okay. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of side effects. They have to be taken for a really long time. Uh, you know, the positive effects don't really kick in until a few weeks in the treatment. And, you know, part of what I argue is that psychedelics offer a much better paradigm, um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy specifically. And this is only not used for political reasons. And the historical you know, reasons as uh, why psychedelics like became out of favor are a big focus of the piece. You mentioned SSRIs, and I didn't write this down, but when you're replying, I thought that um, I started thinking about people I know who have been on SSRIs and their experiences with them. What they have told me in the past is they were having whatever issue. Let's say that this, let's say they're incredibly depressed, and they took mm-hmm. SSRIs, and they told me afterwards. Yeah, you know, I said, do they work? And they said, yeah, they work great. And I said, oh, so you're happy now? And they said, no, SSRIs make it so you're you're no longer sad. It makes it so you're kind of nothing. What does it say to you about the way that we approach mental health therapy when we think that making somebody feel nothing rather than possibly (laughs) feeling something from taking psilocybin or LSD or any kind of these classical psychedelics. What does it say about our mental mental health system when we just want to negate feelings? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think, look, feeling nothing is better than feeling like crippling depression or anxiety. So I I think that's still an improvement in the lives of a lot of people. And I've had a lot of friends had benefits from SSRIs. But I think it's uh, not really getting to the root cause of, of mental illness, which you know we don't really know for certain. But there are some people who theorize it's an excess uh, ordering of the mind. So you're stuck into ruts and habits of thought that have been persisting for months or years. And you know the psychedelic experience can kind of like shake the snow globe of the mind and ex- you know introduce some entropies and disorder that can be really helpful. Um, and cause people to see their lives in a new way. But, you know, I, I do think, especially with like the climate change and other political 
um, realities, you know, depression and, and other, you know, mental illness can be seen as like a fairly rational response to a world that, you know, your show title captures. Um, and while I don't think psychedelics are going to be the thing that the only thing that like, you know, saves us from ourselves, um, it can cause people to see their, you know, same reality, their same life in a very different way. Are psychedelics showing any evidence that they have better in- outcomes? I've seen some of this evidence, but I wanted you to lay it out for our audience. Are psychedelics showing that they have better mental health co- outcomes than, say, things like SSRIs? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of incredible the range of different applications that um, psychedelics have been used um, in therapy. And I, I don't focus too much on it in this piece because it's very well covered in Michael Pollan's articles in his book, How to Change Your Mind. But um, psychedelics have been used for depression, addiction. Uh, if you include MDMA as a psychedelic, uh, PTSD, uh, smoking, alcoholism, and treating existential anxiety in terminally ill cancer patients. And in each of these studies, you know, psychedelics have beaten the best available, you know, current treatments and have done so in ways that are like much, much faster. Um, you know, an SSRI, as I mentioned, might take like six weeks to kick in and people will be on them for, you know, I think over 60% of people have been on their SSRIs for over two years. Whereas some research on psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, has caused people to, you know, come out of like a depressive state in one session. Um, I should note that a lot of these studies are done with very small, small sample sizes. The researchers and the participants are very highly motivated. Um, so there's a possibility they won't generalize, but the effect sizes are, are quite large in a wide range of these, and they're often treating people with treatment-resistant conditions. So they've tried two or more forms of therapy before getting psychedelic treatment. So these are the toughest nuts to crack. We have had many guests on our show talk about the shortcomings and the problems that are caused by neoliberalism. One of those things is it imposes a lack of political imagination on the public. You write classical psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms share more than just structure and method of action. They are anti-addictive. They help users break addictions and don't create dependencies themselves. Non-toxic and generally affect the mind far more than they affect the body. At low to medium doses, psychedelics can induce a dreamlike state. Imagination is heightened. In our, under our system of neoliberalism, can psychedelics overcome the limited political imagination that neoliberalism impo- imposes on us? We've had plenty of guests on who have said that political ima- imagination is limited. So can tripping expand our political imagination? Uh, yeah, I think there's been evidence of this in the past. Uh, there are some crazier propositions that have come from psychedelicists like Timothy Leary saying he imagines a LSD using Supreme Court and a pot smoking Congress. Um, and I think he made a prediction that that would happen in like 10 years. And 10 years later, uh, Nancy Reagan said that just say no to drugs. And there was like this huge backlash to, to drug culture. But there have also been proposals that have like gotten traction and had a really positive impact in, in my view. Um, Stuart Brand was uh, kind of like a polymath who in the, I think 1966 was tripping on this rooftop in San Francisco and kind of had this question, like, why haven't we seen the whole earth yet? And he kind of led this campaign, sent buttons out, and eventually there was enough public pressure and interest that NASA turned around uh, you know, one of the cameras and took the first photo of the entire earth. This led to the whole earth catalog and 
is a big contributor to the rise of environmentalism. And so that kind of like random acid trip led to, uh, you know, it's played a role in contributing to this larger, larger movement. And, you know, I, I don't even know what, you know, could come out of a more turned on society uh, in terms of the political ideas that, that might be generated. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you, actually, was uh, can psychedelics help us with any either climate change denial that we still may have, or can it help us with adapting to the pending and actually already happening climate change that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I I don't know if, you know, a psychedelic trip will have somebody, you know, change their beliefs about, you know, whether climate change is true. Um, to my knowledge, there's not research on, like, people changing their specific uh, views on, like, policy issues um, as a result of psychedelic trips. But there's some research that uh, psychedelic experiences can release, increase people's nature-relatedness, which is another measure of, like, how in touch they feel with the world around them. and the uh, Religious, religious or spiritual experiences people sometimes have on psychedelics are often marked by a profound sense of connection to everybody around you, the planet itself, this deep understanding that we're all part of this connected ecosystem and dependent on each other. And I think that kind of understanding is really important in solving collective action problems like climate change. Um, you know, I don't know if it will be the, the silver bullet, but I, I certainly think it, it can't hurt. You write that at higher doses, sometimes called ethnogenic or ethio, entheo, sorry, entheo, entheogenic. Yes, yeah. entheogenic. My dyslexia was kicking in there. Doses for their uh, ability to create uh, spiritual experiences. Psychedelics can break down the barrier between self and the external world. Some users experience ego death and the complete loss of subjective self identity. Are psychedelics then a threat to your ego, to your self-identity? Are the more ego-oriented you are, the more anti-tripping you are? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, in, in one sense, the bigger the ego, maybe the, the greater the need for a psychedelic experience. Um, I would say that, you know, just in people I know, it's a temporary experience. It's uh, the ego death might persist over the course of a day. But then the identity is reconstructed, you know, as the, the drug effects wear off. Um, but even that temporary kind of respite from, from the domination of the ego can lead to like really profound um, realizations that ego defenses don't allow to get in. Um, I know Michael Pollan writes, writes about this very beautifully in, in How to Change Your Mind. Um, and I think this yeah, can allow people to believe things that they would otherwise um, just never really let in. And this is part of why people can make like massive behavior changes after a single day, which, you know, as anybody who's tried to quit smoking or go on a diet knows is, is really hard to do. Um, so the fact that like a single session with one of these substances can, can lead to that is a uh, testament to their, their potency. Why do users put so much stock in something that was revealed to them through a combination of drugs and their own imagination? Why not simply dismiss what is experienced during a psycho, uh, psychedelic experience? Why not just dismiss it as high on thoughts or idea rather than give them even mystical power over your worldview? Yeah. I, I mean, I think if you, if you were to take mushrooms at a festival without really knowing anything about them and having, you know, some skepticism around like the truth of drug experiences, you might have a mystical experience and then kind of like write it off as just like, oh, a crazy drug experience and not know how to integrate it back into your life. 
Um, but I think the, uh, and, and Pollan writes about this, is like the subject-object divide uh, dissolves in a, in a true ego death. And when there's no subject to do an evaluation of whatever is believed to be true during that experience, you know, there's no way of like evaluating the information or parsing it the way you normally would. And it becomes like deeply true. And uh, William James calls this the, the noetic quality, um, where you think that like what you're experiencing is capital T true. And, you know, I have friends who are, you know, very reasonable people with like successful careers and they've gone on ayahuasca retreats and claim to have seen a demon leave their body. And it's like a literal demon, not, not a metaphor of some kind. And so for me, that's like, okay, I, I'm not on that train. Um, but you know, they, they just can't shake the feeling. And, and so that can lead to some of the like more peculiar beliefs that, that psychedelic enthusiasts sometimes hold. Um, I would say that most of these beliefs don't have the same kind of baggage as other, you know, religious convictions. They're usually less dogmatic and more focused on like individual, you know, spiritual expression, which I think poses less risk of, you know, the kind of dogmas that organized religions can push. I need your friend's phone number. Uh, you write from the <laughs> 1940s to the early 1960s, psychedelics were seen as a wonder drug embraced by res- respected and mainstream celebrities like Cary Grant, Jack Nicholson, Stanley Kubrick, Aldous Huxley. Researchers couldn't believe how effective these drugs were. A 1967 article reviewing 42 papers studying psychedelics therapy conducted between 53 and 65 found therapy to be successful in 70% of anxiety cases, 62% of depression cases, and 42% of OCD cases. However, it should be noted that these studies were largely uncontrolled. Still, if that were, if it was so great, if they were so great, what happened? Why aren't they legal anymore? Why would you make something that had shown such promise when it comes to mental health therapy, and we had so many problems with mental health in the 50s and 60s? So what happened? Why, what, why aren't they legal anymore yeah yeah i mean politics got in a way you know in, in a nutshell um the the typical story i've come across is that you know there was this really promising drug as you laid out um is being used to great effect by therapists and intellectuals and then people like timothy leary and the counterculture populist ken kesey um key psychedelics over the wall separating you know the intellectual elite and the great unwashed and then this leads to kind of a public health crisis as millions of people are turning on, tuning in, dropping out. Um, and then, you know, the government has no choice but to step in and regulate acid and then ultimately ban it. Um, I think this is actually not correct. There's a story that played out beneath the surface that was not, you know, a- apparent to the media at the time. But the CIA, uh, through MK Ultra, was doing, you know, rampant experimentation with, with psychedelics, with acid in particular. They were inspired by Nazis' use of mescaline on uh, prisoners in Dachau. And so that kind of set the tone for the entire experiment where they did all kinds of crazy things like, uh, you know, dose each other at work and coming up with plans to dose Fidel Castro before he gives a speech. Uh, there were ideas of dosing an entire American city's water supply to uh, inoculate, you know, America from the possibility of a Soviet uh, psychedelic attack. And uh, they also just gave it to random Americans, um, you know, without their consent, which violates the Nuremberg Convention. And so all this stuff is happening. And the CIA at first thought that psychedelics, you know, mimicked madness in, in the people that were experiencing them. And they thought they were, you know, the ticket to the 
keys to the universe. Um, but then around the same time as Leary and others were, you know, making psychedelics more widely available or at least hyping them up to the, the masses, uh, the CIA had soured on acid as the, the ticket to the universe and focused on other drugs and kind of like got what they needed out of it. And so they let the FDA step in and regulate it. And then, you know, they were still allowed to do whatever they wanted with it. Um, and then ultimately contributed to, you know, the media backlash against it. So you had people like Henry Luce who controlled time life and he personally benefited from psychedelics with his wife um, and ran positive stories in the fifties. And then, you know, in the sixties, they ran scare stories about people losing their minds, killing their families, shoving off the buildings. Um, almost all of which you know, cannot be verified. And this media backlash combined with the anti-war left and uh, you know civil rights movement led to a moral panic around psychedelics where they were blamed for all the nation's problems and the, the turbulence of the times. And this led to Nixon explicitly and cynically targeting drugs as a way of controlling you know, the undesirables. Um, so they criminalized him in 1966, uh, California, criminalized LSD. And then in 1970, the Controlled Substance Act criminalized all psychedelics. Research stopped entirely in 1976. And, you know, if you look at this, there's like almost no evidence of most of the negative claims about psychedelics. They were just tied to the wrong types of people at the wrong time. So media exaggeration. I, I remember this. There's this great episode, if you have not seen it, the Adam 12. What a horrible, awful show. But there is an episode where a guy takes acid. And they call in the cops to take care of him. And the reason that they're calling the cops is because he's barking like a dog on the street and chewing bark off of a tree. Now, I have <laughs> tripped far too many times in my life, but I can tell you I've never been going around chewing a tree. And when you were talking about how, like, mescaline uh, use in Dachau, a friend of mine, he took acid while working on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse. And I thought that was the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life. Oh, my but, goodness. But good luck, Gord, taking mescaline and Dachau or being forced to take it is just insane. Often we find racism in drug criminalization. Can we find the roots of criminalizing psychedelics that have very positive outcomes on mental health in racism? Because isn't psychedelic use dominated by privileged white people? Yeah, yeah, this was tricky because, you know, as you mentioned, historically, um, drugs were criminalized when they became associated with uh, minority groups. So uh, Chinese and opium in the 1800s, uh, Mexicans and marijuana in the 1930s, um, heroin and crack with black people, you know, in many decades. Um, and yeah, the psychedelic, you know, left was very middle class, very white. You know, these are the sons and daughters of people who fought World War II, who were kind of rejecting the corporate uh, consumerist, you know, mindset of their parents and rejecting the war. And so it didn't have the easy, you know, association with, with groups that were already stigmatized. Um, but, you know, the Nixon campaign um, and a, the domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, just explained, you know, candidly in, in 1994, how uh, the Nixon campaign in 1968 had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people, and they couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but, you know, they associated hippies with marijuana. And, you know, he doesn't say this, but LSD and, and psilocybin and blacks with heroin and criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt 
these communities. And he says, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Um, and so I think it took more work probably. Um, you know, in the past, the New York Times could just run a headline like Negro cocaine fiends menace the South. You know, that was a real headline in like 1914. And you just do a few of those and like people will whip up into a frenzy and go against it. But it was trickier because you had the elites of American society, you know, using these drugs themselves. And they kind of had to come up with like this dual standard for, you know, usage. Um, and I, I'd imagine there were some people in the, the top echelons who were opposed to uh, the criminalization that was happening. But at some point, the momentum was too great. You write, historically, the U.S. criminalized drugs when they became associated with poor people and people of color. Psychedelics, however, were favored by well-educated white middle-class youth. Octavio Paz, a writer in an alternative publication you believe correctly identified as the real motivation at the time. You quote uh, Paz writing, the authorities do not behave as though they were trying to stamp out a harmful vice, but as though they were attempting to stamp out dissidents. Since this is a form of dissidence that is becoming more widespread, the prohibition takes on the proportion of a campaign against a spiritual contagion, against an opinion. What the authorities are displaying is ideological zeal. They are punishing a heresy, not a crime. What does that mean when LSD criminalization is seen as punishing a heresy, profoundly at odds with what is generally accepted, and not a crime, a way in which you are breaking the law? Yeah, I I think it's, you know, LSD became the locus of, of so many things in, in the 60s. And it, you know, this is something the CIA found in its research and other therapists found in its research is that it's a profoundly malleable experience. So if you give it to somebody and they're strapped to a chair in a, you know, fluorescent lit lab and you tell them this is going to make you go crazy for 12 hours, that's often what they experience. Conversely, if you give it to somebody at a music festival or in a beautiful natural setting or in a you know, comfortable um, therapist's office and say this is going to lead to profound um, you know, realizations and a spiritual experience, that's often what they experience as well. And so the personal experience of LSD is malleable, but the cultural experience was as well. And so it became this you know, ticket to the new world and you know, the vision of a peaceful, loving, caring, you know, society um, that many people on the left saw it as. And then it was also this mind control drug. And then it was this way of like radicalizing youth who were uh, for the first time really rebelling against, you know, the wars uh, that their parents wanted them to fight um, and the jobs that their parents wanted them to get. And, you know, I, I think Vietnam, you know, it's interesting, like there wasn't nearly as much of an anti-war movement against the Korean War. And I haven't looked into, you know, why that is. Um, it's possible that psychedelics were a contributor to the difference. It's possible that the civil rights movement uh, made people more politically aware. Um, you know, th- there are many possible explanations, but, you know, the introduction of psychedelics could have been that, that linchpin. And, you know, for whatever reason, Nixon saw this as uh, the, the thing. And it was kind of like a scapegoat, but also possibly a, a real explanation for uh, the, the turbulent times. Did opponents then view LSD as the reason for dissent for protest in the 1960s? Were they trying to stamp out the protest of the era by criminalizing LSD? I, I, I saw definitely evidence of that, um, particularly in the book Acid Dreams, the Complete Social History of LSD, um, 
and you know, I, I obviously can't speak for all, all the people that were, you know, leading this fight. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there was like acid was the loudest example of people like rebelling and, you know, it, it was a way of in an instant, you know, changing your mind and breaking from your parents' generation and doing something totally new. Um, and so, and, and the fact that like Timothy Leary and uh, Ken Kesey and, and others were so strongly associated with like the counterculture anti-authority, um, you know, mindset of the time and psychedelics, I think did a, did a lot of work in, you know, in the minds of, of the powers that be, I mean, Timothy Leary, uh, Nixon declared him the public enemy number one, which is kind of insane. He's like, oh, you know, washed up psychology professor who was trying to get people to do a drug that would make them like turn into a hippie, apparently. And this was like the greatest threat to the social order in, in Nixon's mind, which probably says more about Nixon than anything else. <laughs> yeah, that he was a nut. So uh, <laughs> can it can tripping, can psychedelics have a profound effect as it may have had a profound effect on the anti-war movement of the 60s. Can it have a profound effect on climate change? Yeah. I mean, as, as we mentioned earlier, I, I, think, I think so. I think that people, um, especially those who break through and have a spiritual experience, can feel that profound sense of connection to, to everybody around them and the planet and the realization that we're all connected. We're all in this boat together. Um, but, you know, it's not going to give people the, the tools for collective action. You know, like it's not going to work in the absence of organizing and protesting and coming up with policies. And, you know, I think like if I'm going to bet on, you know, LSD to save us from climate change or the Green New Deal or Extinction Rebellion, I'm going with the policy and activist communities over psychedelics. So uh, you were mentioning the media's role earlier. What does it reveal to you about the media maybe at the time let's maybe you know limit this to maybe the 1960s or maybe just in general what does it reveal to you about the media when they are and were so anti-psychedelics they were more anti-psychedelics than science was what does it say to you about the media when they were so against tripping yeah i mean i take uh the herman and chomsky view uh for manufacturing consent that, you know, the media is a reflection of power as it exists in society. So it's going to reflect the interests of wealthy people because they own the media outlets. It's going to reflect the interests of the government because they provide sources to journalists um, and, and down the line. And so the media was actually very favorable towards psychedelics in like the 50s. Um, I think in 1957, Life magazine ran a front page story on uh, psychedelic mushrooms written by R. Gordon Wasson. And it was, you know, very, very positive. And they read a few other you know, positive articles to that effect. I mentioned that Henry Luce, you know, personally used acid with his wife in therapy and found it, you know, greatly beneficial. And, you know, Time Life was probably the biggest media empire in the country at the time and was, you know, very positive on these things. But there was kind of an about face um, that coincided with you know, the rise of Leary and um, the CIA turning on on the drugs and, and no longer wanting them to be widely available for their experiments. Um, and so I, I don't think like the media is like inherently anti-psychedelics or pro-psychedelics. It's more just reflecting, you know, what powerful people at the time wanted. Um, and I think, I think I talked about it in the piece, but I think Henry Luce like was explicitly reacting to 
you know, request from the government to like change the narrative on this. You know, he knew better. He knew what these things were capable of and the safety profiles of them. Um, and there's also just like the sensational element of it, you know, people taking drugs and going crazy and, you know, killing their family. Like that's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That's, that's a good, good story. That's good copy. Um, and I think there's like always this interest in, you know, this mysterious thing that is so powerful in such small quantities. And so there's like a natural tendency to um, kind of aggrandize the, the experience and, and sensationalize things as well. That uh, the article, I think it was in Life magazine, uh, Jim Carroll writes about it in Basketball Diaries, and he talks about how Life magazine ruined uh, acid, ruined tripping for everybody because they told it had like a how-to, apparently, of telling you how to trip, and they said <laughs> you should sit in your apartment at home and listen to music with your friends. And he said, now everybody's doing that. That's what they think they're supposed to do while they're tripping and it ruined tripping for everybody in the sixties because he said the best thing to do is go outside as your soul fills the space you're in. So if you're in a limited room, then you're going to have a really weird trip as opposed to being outside. So that, that kind of like people are very upset about the way it was even being packaged in the media. You write mushrooms of the magic variety grow all over the world in over a hundred species. Mescaline occurs naturally in the peyote cactus and DMT can be found in many plants and animals, possibly including ourselves. Since they're naturally occurring, these drugs can't be patented. Is there any connection between those drugs' inability to be patented and their criminalization? Yeah, I mean, there's no smoking gun that I'm that I know of, but um, I spend a good amount of time looking at the economics of psychedelics and trying to understand, you know, why these things were allowed to be criminalized in the first place. And it, it kind of makes sense, you know, they're anti-addictive, um, so the black market is not even that interested in providing them because. If you're going to run the risk of having drugs on you, you're going to sell the anti-addictive drugs that people do occasionally for cocaine. Um, but then that kind of economics also applies to, you know, the legitimate <laughs> providers of, of drugs and pharmaceuticals. And so, yeah, since these things are naturally occurring, and in many cases, or in LSD's case, it went off patent at a time when people were not interested in um Acid anymore, or at least the government and you know, mainstream researchers were not interested in using it anymore. Um, there's no real economic incentive to keep making it. Um, there's no way to make a lot of money from it. And so I'm not saying that like the pharma companies conspired and said, okay, make this stuff illegal because it's going to put us out of business. Um, I'm just saying that there's a likelihood that like if these drugs had been wildly profitable or had a different profile that you know, allowed these companies to make money. Off of them, there might have been more resistance to their prohibition. Um, and this is part of the issue now. It's like people like uh, Rick Doblin and MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, are having to you know, fund uh, clinical trials with the FDA just from donations because um, MDMA has been off patent. It was made in, I think, 1914 for the first time. Um, so it's the best thing that we have for uh, PTSD treatment. Um, by like a huge margin. And like, this is like one of the more robust conclusions of, of the research so far is going to phase three trials with the FDA. Um, so it's like profound social good could come from MDMA assisted psychotherapy, but uh, you know, big pharma company has like almost no interest in providing it because they can't have a patent on it. So it's a very sad case where like so many things, the profit motive does not align with the social motive. 
And you mentioned uh, Rick Doblin, who founded the Multidisciplinary Association for uh, Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, in 1986, the year after MDMA was criminalized. MAPS is the most prominent organization pushing for political change on psychedelics and has funded the research on MDMA for PTSD, which is beginning phase three clinical trials with the FDA. Should these trials succeed, MDMA, or ecstasy, will be moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 in 2021, the equivalent of going from being treated like heroin to being treated like low-dose codeine. What kind of impact, I know this is a huge question, but what kind of impact (laughs) do you think that will have on society? Because there are critics of recreational marijuana who are concerned about the impact marijuana will have on society. How different will our world be when here in the States we have hallucinogens as Schedule Three drugs, if not decriminalized altogether and legal recreational uh, marijuana, how different should could society be and soon due to the impact of legalized hallucinogens and weed? Yeah, I mean, that's, that was kind of the goal of the piece to answer that question. And it's, it's a really tough one. Um, I think it really depends on how these things come to be available to people. So if psychedelics are only available in a therapeutic setting and cost thousands of dollars to do the force full course of treatment and aren't covered by insurance, then they'll actually be much less accessible than they are now where, you know, they're very cheap on the black market if you know how to get them. Um, And so that, that may not actually be an improvement over the status quo because it's much less egalitarian um, and accessible to people across, you know, class and income lines. Um, But if they're available over the counter in specialty stores as they are in Amsterdam, um, you know, I, I think you could see people who are, more open-minded, uh, more anti-authoritarian, more uh, environmentally focused, and hopefully more empathetic towards one another. Um, I should note that like tens of millions of Americans have done psychedelics before, and so we're not living in a world that is like pre-psychedelics at this point. Um, there are examples of cultures that have been drastically shaped by psychedelics, like Burning Man and a lot of other festivals. And you know, I've been to Burning Man the last three years, and it's a really wacky, creative, um, and community-oriented environment. Um, and you see enclaves of this in, in cities like San Francisco, parts of Brooklyn, um, Pacific Northwest. Like You see more of like the hippy-dippy stuff, um, not all of which I would endorse. Uh, but then also like more things that people, um, I think, should, should be doing, which is like yoga, meditation, uh, things that improve wellness you know, holistically. Uh, but I think a lot more of that, hopefully less um, xenophobia, racism, homophobia, et cetera, and, and more caring about people, not just in their neighborhood, but around the world. I remember this urban legend that said that if you had experienced 25 doses of LSD, then you could be legally determined to be insane. And if that's the case, (laughs) I guess I'm uh, insane about five or six times over. I got one last question for you. We've been speaking with freelance writer Garrison Lovely, who wrote the current affairs article, Make America Trip Again. By the way, he cites a book over and over in his writing, uh, Acid Dreams, The Complete Social History of LSD, by uh, co-written by a past guest on our show, Martin Lee, with Bruce Schlain. It's from the 1980s, but it is a fantastic book. And if you're interested in psychedelics, read Acid Dreams, The Complete Social History of LSD by Martin 
Lee and Bruce Schlain, S-H-L-A-I-N. One last question for you, Gordon, and it's our, our Garrison, and it's our question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Legalization, commercialization, they're going to ruin weed because of big tobacco and alcohol inevitably taking over the entire industry. Is legalization and commercialization going to ruin tripping too? Oh man, I, I hope not. Um, I also I don't know if I would agree with the first part of the the question either. Um, I think look, the status quo is that you can get arrested and go to prison for possessing a substance that is not addictive. You can't overdose on it, and can lead to profound experiences of, of beauty that can change your life for the positive. Um, you know, a legal version of that strikes me as better in in almost every way. Um, even if it is mediated through, you know, the capitalist world that we live in. So I think if safer versions of these drugs where you know what you're getting become available to people, um, even if initially it's just through, you know, expensive sessions at, you know, retreats or through insurance provided um, sessions, I, I don't think it will stop there. I think it will become more widely available and the way, ways in which people use psychedelics, I think, are just very distinct from how people use marijuana. Um, I don't think there will be nearly as much of a push to, like, increase the dosage and get people, you know, using it every day. Um, I just don't think that's ever how people will be doing these things. So maybe I'm too naive and optimistic about how our culture will hopefully not ruin this, this wonderful thing. But um, we'll see how things play out over the next few years. Oh, my money's on ruining it. well this is hell right exactly thank you so much for being on the show garrison this is fantastic writing please stay in touch with us because i would love to have you back on the show i've really enjoyed our conversation today all right same here thank you so much this is hell where we put people before profits which turns out to be a really idiotic business model during the moment of truth in a couple of moments jeff dorchin honors the late great theater oobleck member Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash thisishell, I gave my commencement address to the class of 2019. So if you are graduating in any way or know anyone graduating from anything this year, have them sit down and listen to the only honest commencement speech they will hear this year. I know that commencement propaganda usually gets all inspirational about your future, but sorry, grads of 2019, your future is screwed, so you might as well have someone tell you that now that you're graduating, it's going to be real bad. Yes, sir? Oh, also as a bonus on Patreon, I released a July 1999 interview you did with Richard Metzger uh, all about Timothy Leary behind bars, and uh, that story about him being a snitch, and it's a wild, short, really fun interview, so that's uh, if you like the uh, Garrison Lovely thing, uh, check that out, too. Uh, Look through our archives, too, our old archives. There are many interviews, I believe, with Richard. He was from Disinfo, and he really liked that guy. He uh, did a great job of promoting our show way back in the last century we also shared the late in our patreon podcast we also shared uh the latest installment of our patreon only series in oral history of the iraq wars it happened here on this is hell this week we went back to december 2002 four months before the invasion of iraq and talked to german journalist andreas zumach who reported on the two dozen u.s corporations that had supplied iraq with the components necessary to make wnd another wmd in other words 
Iraq's failed weapons of mass destruction program, which the U.S. used as an excuse for war, U.S. corporations were profiting from that program. So no, nobody else was reporting that story here in the States as the media was too excited about covering their next new war and all the ratings it would mean. But you can only hear me give a very uninspirational but authentic commencement speech of the class of 2019 and hear how we were reporting the run-up to the Iraq war and hear the Richard Metzger interview where he talks about Timothy Leary being a rat if you subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Special thanks this week goes to our newest Patreon subscribers, Schaefer, Jim, Jack, Mitchell, and David. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. Become a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and every week get exclusive content only for subscribers. That includes new monologues from me, a classic interview that you can't get anywhere else, and access to live streaming content where we pre-record when when we pre-record the show for broadcast here on WNUR on Saturday mornings. When I am out of town, but right now you're listening to me live from WNUR Studios. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during the moment of truth, Jeff honors the late, great Danny Thompson, a legend of the arts gone too soon. We want to keep reminding you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party as well, just happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, on Saturday, July 27th. Put that in your calendar. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell, tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of this is Hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have Hefe. I'm One, two, you know what to do. A sliver of Slotkins. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. This is going to be a mere sliver of the mansion of love and mourning and celebration and remembering that the world's people who knew Danny Thompson are revisiting right now and will probably carry on revisiting forever. My sliver. And it's okay if this is only a small fragment of the lore and legacy of... Danny, Edward, Bino Q, Slotkins, Esteban, Vincente, Harriet Beecher, Stowe, Thompson. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the theater Ublek extended family social media reverberations, but we lost the father and scientist and friend and advisor and brother and stylist and baby and craftsman of us all, Danny Thompson, to a freak genetic ailment. On Monday night, I heard he was in the hospital awaiting a new liver but in no danger, and on Tuesday morning, I woke up to an email to the Ublek Core Company members group saying he had died. Mikkel Maher was crying. I barely got out of bed that day. Death had to take him quick, I thought, at one particularly stupid moment, because with more time, he'd have figured out a way to escape the dumb Reaper. That Reaper is a bozo. He's not as good a chess player as he reputed to be either. He's not even grim. He's just an asshole. If you don't know what you've lost, world, you've lost plenty. You've lost everything. You think this is an exaggeration? How wrong you are. Danny Thompson lived as he liked and loved as he wished and was just the all-around master of creative flow. I met him in Ferndale in high school, although I don't think he was in high school anymore by the time I met him. Anyway, he went to a different high school than I did when he did. I met him when I was in high school, but when he wasn't in a 
different high school anymore. I remember him having a car, a big powder blue muscle car with weird chrome ornamental spheres embedded in the hood. It had a Winnebago engine in it, he said. His mother's boyfriend, Dan, was an auto mechanic. Danny's good friend, Tony Rowe, was a hybrid Native American who had been dishonorably discharged from the Army. He'd been stationed in Korea patrolling the DMZ and had punched his CO and broken his jaw. They allowed him to avoid prison if he gave up all his veterans benefits. This is how I remember it. And Tony had a friend, Roy, and I'm not sure if Dan or Tony or Roy or someone altogether else had put that Winnebago engine in that car, but apparently it was in there. Then I saw him at that different high school in an excerpt from a play as Beetle Bumble with my other friend, Danny, Danny Barron, who is now my writing partner. And there I first saw Danny Thompson's miraculous physicality. He could be graceful and patrician. His hands could be anything. He could be anything. As I say, he wasn't in high school anymore, but he hung around to be in theater. And around that time, he told me that in the original production of Pier Gint, they'd flooded an amphitheater to stage a naval battle. I may have that wrong, or he may have had. Anyway, yes, he hung around Ferndale High School, even after graduating, to participate in the theater, much as he did later in Ann Arbor, long after he'd stopped attending classes at University of Michigan. Danny was from Bonacqua, Tennessee. Let me tell this my way. I never met his father, who was a fiddle player, who for a while played with Hank Bocephus Williams Jr. His mother, Dolly, was the sweetest human being, even sweeter than Danny, and Danny got a large share of her sweetness. We took me, he took me home from college once for Christmas. Dolly is responsible for my eating my first ever Christmas ham. I think that accounts for me enjoying so much eating ham years later in Chicago at theater critic Tony Adler and his wife Beth's Whitman's Tide parties, or maybe like many other Ublex, I just like free ham, or maybe it was just me that liked the free ham. I'll always associate that first Christmas and that first Christmas ham with Christmas, and I always try to have a good Christmas because of it. Danny, Danny, Danny Thompson. This is for you, Till Eulenspiegel. How can I go on without you? How can the universe go on? You were always latent in it. You emerged and made it yours, and now you've gone from it. What function can it possibly serve now greater than to bring you to us? Later, Dolly married her boyfriend, Dan, in a wedding at the VFW Hall, and all the Ublecks were invited. As the bride and groom stood at the altar, Dolly's brother came in, in overalls, bare feet, and a shotgun, playing the hillbilly, and hollered, Where's that short-legged man supposed to marry my sister? Then we had all the food and danced around and around to the polka band. It was one of the biggest of hoots. It was a wonderful day. Danny made plays and poems and could do any movement, make any gesture, and make any noise. He made paintings and drawings and sculptures and collage films and collage sculptures and noise collages and radio plays. He cooked country ribs. He loved opera. The first poem of his I read was Sewer Church on Sunday, Weasel Death on Monday. He was passionately involved in every facet of the theater. Per theater artist David Isaacson, Danny's perfectionism was legend. Oh, the late night's potch over the anywhere else than here today set or some 
costume or prop or video collage. Hey, it's 15 minutes to curtain. Where is Abby Shear's burlap dress for Antistasia? Ah, Danny shows up with it, having cleaned it, fixed it, restored it to perfect burlapness. He invented cocktails. He toured the British Isles with his, his and Greg Allen's parodic Saturnalian faux Beckett plays. He played Ben Johnson opposite Mia Shakespeare in Edward Bond's Bingo. Again, David Isaacson. Over the years, I cast Danny as Roberto Rossellini, Václav Havel, Bill Clinton, and Jean-Paul Sartre. It was not just that he could do voices, though, oh my gosh, he could. He was an astounding mimic. He inhabited those roles. They were caricatures, in a sense, but never reductive caricatures. They were caricatures that revealed a deeper humanity and truth, like Daumier caricatures. He finally nested into love with Meredith Newman, who, among other things, is a pastry chef and a Japan scholar and a professor of American literature at Clark College in Worcester, where we had all imagined, where we had all imagined they would grow old together. And now the stupid universe has fucked that up. Yes, it's fucked up before, but this time it's gone too far. Really big time. This fuck up. This time it's personal. Like. It hurt people's stomachs, this fuck-up. It made everyone cry. It stings like a blizzard of needles in the face. Rodney Curtis, friend from Danny and my other friend Danny's high school, recalls the following, and I think we'll all recognize the Danny we knew. One of the funniest things, nope, the funniest thing I remember seeing Danny Thompson do live was at a gas station. We were filling up his car, and he walked all suspicious-like, passed the paper towel dispenser, and with one quick motion, swiped the towel and shoved it under his coat like he was shoplifting. God damn, I pert near laughed out of my 1970s shell. I've related that story to my family and friends over the years, and it, it gets lost in translation. But I know you can see him doing that move simply for an audience of one. He's right. I can see him. Even so, you had to be there. I really had to be there. I spent a lot of time with Danny and ate and drank and made a lot of art with him, but not as much as I wish I had. I wish I had more time with him. I wish. I wish he were here, even if only to continue making my friends happy, even if only to continue making Meredith and her and their friends in Worcester happy. Oh, hell, I do wish that. I, I can't stand this. But I'll try to go on because Danny would say, oh, you know what cheese makes the best grilled cheese? What cheese, Danny? What cheese? A person can be heartbroken and full of love, devastated and euphoric at the same time. People have done it all through history. Get some new socks. Have some tea. Listen to some Louis Jordan. Watch those movies that on that thumb drive I sent you. That should carry you through a few years. Look at those hills. Wildflowers. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Hey, <clears throat> you're making me uh, tear up here. Ah, uh, you big baby. I know. But condolences. I didn't know Danny hardly as well as you did, but I did know him, and uh, my girl is you very him, yeah. broken up about it as well. So, yeah. Jeff, yeah, I love you. Oh, man. I love you too, man. I hope to see you this summer, but I'm not counting on it. Mm, just I'm, I'm really broke. Yeah, I might do something about that. <laughs> Oh, you might fly here? Mm, nope. I might be doing oh, something okay. about that for you. 
I'll leave that as a surprise later on. Okay. Anyway, I love you. Oh, and Alex, thank, thank, I would like to thank Alex for his condolences this weekend. So thanks, Alex. Yeah, thank by the way, thank you, Jeff, for introducing me to Danny and uh, Mickle and uh, David and Wiley and everybody who's involved, Dave Book and everybody who's involved uh, with Theater Ublek. Uh, that made the 1980s and uh, 1990s very tolerable for me. So thank you very much, and uh, yeah. stay beautiful. I will. Uh, I just have to say, I really, I, I'm really grateful that the uh, This Is Hell family is part of the big, bigger you know, touched by Danny Thompson and Ublick and everything family. Yeah. All right. Love you. Hi, man. Live from the land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the word out about this is hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all the listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to Astrid, Nick, Mike, Jeff with 1F, Dan Z, Gary, Howard, John T., Melinda, Jake, Julie, Stephen, Daniel, Rob, Matthew, Mark, Will, Rich, Brandon, Victoria, Adam, Krimsky, Jonathan, Martin, Randell, Johnny, Van, Anti-Tanky Cookies for Anti-Reactionary Nookies, Gorilla Gramophonics, Jeffrey, Ross, and Austin, who writes... I've learned so much about the world from the show, and it's criminal that more people don't know about it. It's also a podcast, and add it to your commute. This show just became the first and only thing I'm a Patreon supporter of, so I might be biased. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share our show, or any of its content. This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is more think and drink, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., this week it starts a little bit after 7, following our Patreon podcast. Again, you can find Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And this week we're going to be going over the submissions that we have had for Art to be at the This Is Art show as part of our listener appreciation and anniversary party coming up on July 27th. So if you'd like to help us in determining what art we will have, please join us. And if you're an artist and you know an, or you know an artist that you think would be a good addition to our annual art show and party, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And we're also looking for musicians. So if you are a musician or you know uh, some musicians that you would like to have as part of our party email us at chuck at this is hell.com i'm your bitter blind broke gap toothed radio show host chuck mertz producing this week's this is hell alex jerry alex what's happening on next week's show uh, i don't know because i haven't booked anybody yet so i gotta get to work uh, probably something depressing all right this is hell where the coolest musicians get their news all right real quick I want to thank our guests this week, freelance writer Garrison Lovely, who wrote the Current Affairs article, Make America Trip Again, human rights scholar Susie Lee, who wrote the Catalyst article, The Case for Open Borders, filmmaker, writer, musician, organizer, and activist Astra Taylor, author of Democracy May Not Exist, But Will Miss It When It's Gone, journalist, writer, filmmaker Thomas Fozzi, who wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, The European Union is an Anti-Democratic Disgrace, and this week's Hangover Cure is Cover Yourself in Menthol and Mint. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.